Kia ora everyone, welcome back to the Side Hit Podcast. I'm your host, Pat Tony, and today with us we've got Steve Dunstan. Welcome, Steve. Hey, what's up? Oh, it's good to have you on the mic. You've yeah. um, had a wee, wee trip down to Wanaka. Yeah, I'm here, Wanaka. Wow, it's been a while. Like, um, Great to be in the region. Mm. Southern Lakes. Yeah, welcome back. Where it's at, man. Yeah. And um, had a bit of an event up at Kadarona today. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we, we um, the Double Down Rail Jam, we got involved with that, and then also... Hosted a bit of a party on the noodle bar deck there. It was pretty cool, man. Oh, sweet. And um, that was to do with Huffer coming back as a snowboard outerwear brand. Yeah, well, it's actually it's about um, celebrating 25 years of oh, Huffer. Right. So, 25 um, years? Yeah, yeah. Holy shit. 25 years. It's crazy, man. But, um, yeah, like um, for those that may not know, you know, Huffer started um, its first ever range in 97 was... Um, Waterproof, breathable, snowboard outerwear. <laughs> and we made, um, the first range in 97 was actually seven pieces. And for 25 years, we've um, we've remade that range kind of. We've used that, those seven pieces to inform um, a celebrational limited edition collection. All right. So it's all predominantly outerwear, snowboard outerwear. Yeah. Oh, cool. So it's cool, man. So it's, it's quite, being down here and doing that and reconnecting with, the South has been, you know, I, I don't know, man. It's just like, um, it's kind of everything, man, to be honest. Sort of comes back to, sort of come back to your stomping grounds almost. Yeah, 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 totally, man. Mm. Like, um, yeah, and what a stomping ground it is. Yeah, yeah. You're lucky, man. You live here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, a, it's a great place to, um, to call home, for sure. Yeah, 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 beautiful, um, man. Yeah. And Wanaka as well, especially, you know, I'm a Queenstown, Queenstown boy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, every, you know, the, I suppose we'll talk about the old times in Queenstown, but just guilty of spending too much time over there. And spend, now spending time in Wanaka, even just the past couple of days, man. Wanaka is mm. like a beauty, eh? That's cool. Uh, but having said that, Queenstown's not shit either, man. It's uh, nah. every time you have a look at Walter Peak or the Remarkables from there, you're like, fuck yeah, this is. Yeah, if you look, look past cool. the Vegas of the um, town, mm. it is a pretty damn beautiful place. Well, that's the cool thing about Walter Peak. You've got your back to the Vegas part of it, and all <laughs> yeah. you see is Walter Peak. You know? True that, yeah. yeah. That's cool, man. Oh, so good to be here. Good to be here, man. Yeah, man. And um, hopefully um, there might be rumors of TC with Brent Screen tomorrow. Oh, dude, man. So. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, it's funny that I've only just really met that dude, man, but what a legend. Mm. Hey, he, wow. What, 49 and still killing it? Like, <laughs> so cool, man. Yeah. And there's, I mean, fuck, he's supposed to just put up with the three off the rock. It's like, fuck, Yeah, that was cool, man. Yeah. And just, yeah, it's seen as froth, eh? What? Mm. It's an inspiration to anyone doing oh, anything. Totally, totally yeah. There's yeah, a, yeah. a lot to take away from that. And that's a good energy to be around, too. Yeah, it's 100%. real cool. Far out. So, yeah, he's a bit of a legend, that guy. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, the boss, man. Yeah, what's nice. up, Brent? <laughs> yeah, what, what's up? <laughs> oh, Steve, we'll fire this one up. But then, yeah, um, where are you from, and how'd you get into snowboarding? Right, wow. Where am I from? Well, I, yeah, okay. Really quickly, man. Where do I start on this? Um, born in Christchurch. Um, moved out of there when I was eight. Um, moved with my family. Went to the Hawkes Bay. Um, then a place called Havelock North, and then moved again with my dad and his job and my family. We went to Fielding, uh, which was quite an interesting move, man. And, like, my parents decided to buy, like, a lifestyle plot uh, in, right in the middle of, like, Palmerston North and Fielding. I was like, oh, man. I was, like, 12. <laughs> I was just going, what the hell? I just, I think, 
I just discovered skateboarding and I was living on a farm. I was like, man, and the metal two planes. It was terrible, yeah. man. <laughs> and, then, you know, you just start to be social. You might sort of, you know, like girls or boys, you know, like, um, and then, yeah, man, wow. Anyway, that was short-lived. Moved to Auckland when I was like, I think, 14. And then, um, yeah. So I've moved around the country and I suppose 14... Um, Auckland went to Selwyn College which was mm. pretty cool school man like I my dad my mum my and dad moved to Remura like yeah. um, and it was a grammar zone you know Auckland grammar is like a traditional boys school and uh, my dad was um, <laughs> I suppose conservative he, he was like um, um, Christchurch boys high played rugby for the Canterbury mm. B team or something you know, like yeah. down that path and you know, I played rugby back in the day, but didn't really like it because skateboarding turned up. But wow, man! Like, mm. I just I, I didn't want to go to grammar, so I, and you know, man, if Dad, if you listen to this, thank you because you let me not go to grammar, and I went to Selwyn College. It was, right. it was awesome, man. It was like co-ed, mufti, you could wear what you want, mm. but you could also take a skateboard to school. And we had like a mini skate park. So, Sick. so what know, era of skating was this in? Oh man, we're talking like early nineties. All right. So like, oh no, hang on. Sorry. What? No, 89, 90, 90, 91. So like Bones Brigade era sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and that was yeah. what you were looking at as inspiration for skateboarding. Yeah, totally, man. CCS yeah. mail order catalog and. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, skateboarding at school. I probably skated more than I did school, but um, man, that school was beautiful. Man, like the connections and the people <clears> and the diversity of it has really given me some amazing life skills and I, I think if I went to Auckland Grammar I would have failed eh? like getting mm. ranked in you know A, B, C, D, E, F I don't know if you know how it works but yeah like I don't know man like, very regimented and it works for some people yeah. and hats off to Grammar but um, yeah I, li- I like the school I like selling for you know what the depth of it mm. and, you so could, it was, and you could skate yeah yeah it's <laughs> like it was so cool, man. And so who was something, like, as far as skating and influences, like, who were you looking at skate-wise? It's like, fuck you, yeah, that's my Oh, shit. man. Like, eight street days, you know, like, what? I mean, yeah. It was post-Bones Brigade, was Vision. Vision and Bones Brigade, and, you know, or Pal. Um, then, I suppose, all the other brands, you know, turned up, like, Jason Lee and those guys, you know. Oh, like, like blind, blind video days yeah. and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rad. Yeah, you know, I skated, and then... Um, that was my transport around the city as well mm. and um i think for skateboarding what i've learned the most was the connection to people you know like mm. it brought people together it was a a subculture um that you know connected yes. people you know would meet at otr square you know just all roll down there and like it was yeah skateboarding was cool but man the people it was so who you know, was some of the heads at aotr at the time there was this sort of Jeff Sanders' time? Or? Yeah, like Levi Hawkins was there. Yeah. Like I went to school with him. He was a bit younger than me. Um, we, uh, the Mapstones, remember the Mapstones? Yeah. Uh, Chris Schofield. Oh, yeah. He was, uh, Chris Schofield was like managing Cheapskates, Kyber. And, um, you know, he had his own pro model on New Deal, I think. Right, I, I'm I'm not too sure. I, I just know the name. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I still see Chris now. He's amazing. He runs like his own advertising agency. But um, yeah, those days, eh? Wow. And so that was sort that of sort of event. I mean, there's so many people. Mm. So and what was the skate scene in Auckland like at that time? Was it was this sort of the time where it was pretty under not underground, but like really small and tight knit? 
Yeah, relatively. Yeah. Like they had the Nationals and the, uh, down that um, down at the markets downtown. It was all pretty ghetto and you know not not a big. It was it was cool, like not ghetto bad, but uh, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was pretty basic, eh? like, but it's so exciting. I don't know. I, mean, I, I do. I still remember Cheapskate Sky Pass having such a massive wall of skateboards, man. And just yeah. you go in there and like that was where you got your information from a skate store, you know. Mm. And um, that's where you hung out. I've actually learned something. What what we do today with Huffer, but like that that important element of a skate store, you know, you couldn't afford to buy skate videos, you, so you hung out in the store, yeah. you know, and then you're so influenced by. The content that you consumed in the store, the product you saw, the videos, like the boards on the wall, your idols, like. Mm. But then you did that with your friends. You just hung out. Like Cheapskate Sky Pass was my spot. I just jam up there. Had a bus pass. You'd go and dream about the next board you're going to buy, and go and save up some cash, and and then just drop in down Simon Street and into the city. You know, do mm. a downhill bomb to Atia Square. You know. <laughs> so. With, yeah. with your friends, you know, it was so cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, I kind of miss that, like how much of the hub skate, and then even in the snowboard scene too, like the local snowboard shop used to be such the yeah the hub for your information. Yeah, yeah totally. Man. Yeah. Which is sad because now, man, it's so crazy. Like social media, like, I don't want to sound like some old dude, man, but like what you, nothing freaks you out now. Like if you go on to explore <coughs> on, say, Instagram or TikTok or whatever, but nothing's the biggest jump or the biggest slam or some dude driving a car through off a thing and crashing into something. Like, it doesn't... Like, I remember even just five or ten years ago, you go, man, you've got to see this. But now it's like, I've seen everything, man. Yeah, like, so what else can, can someone do? Can you do, like, five backflips, you know, if a wind lip? Yeah, you sort of reminded <laughs> me of that. Like, I remember the first time I seen, say, Jamie Thomas's Welcome to Hell part. Mm-hmm. Like, Toy Machines video and... It was just like one of those things that absolutely floored us mm-hmm. at the time. And then now it's just like, oh, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I hope people still have those moments where they're floored by these things, but. You hope so, right? I don't know. Like, do they? <laughs> yeah, I know. Everything was so narrow that you just focused on, you know, like, whether it be, you know, one of these amazing images on a poster on a wall. Mm. It just had so much influence, eh? But now yeah. I think it gets lost a bit because it's. Is it just too much? <laughs> yeah, it's like an overconsumption of. Well, but maybe that's a good thing. Maybe I'm being close-minded about it. I don't know. Yeah, oh, I don't think I'm qualified to slow down and see the know, detail. You know, slow down and see the detail. But I still hope that people are like watching certain videos, will even be like, "Holy fuck, that's you know." Yeah. Like you know the the Harkin factor or oh, man. subject Harkin something that came out. We're like, oh my god, or yeah, yeah. roadkill or whatever. Do people sit down and watch <clears throat> snowboard films? Though? I try to, although I've noticed that my attention span is fucking getting shorter too. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. I used to sit through a thirty-minute film or something. You know, or even one of the, like the girl or chocolate videos, which is long. Yeah, I yeah. sit through the whole thing to see my favorite parts, and now it's like a fucking five yeah. minutes in, like oh, you know. <laughs> no one listens to an album. Mm. No one even listens to a single, man. Yeah, they listen to part of something you know Dude, attached to a tiktok or something i yeah? started you know when the first lockdown happened i started consuming vinyl again oh nice man yeah I got and, some and now i've started listening to complete albums start to finish again put the yeah. record on there yeah because so it's too much of a ball ache to skip a song yeah <laughs> yeah 
That's interesting. I wonder, like, much maybe like skating and snowboarding, are the artists, are the musicians writing albums as albums? Hmm. And then also is the snowboarder that wants to get seen or some attention or sponsorship, are doing video parts or they're just doing a trick? Or I what are really they? don't know. I, don't I, know yeah. I need to get a couple more of the younger generation on and ask Yeah, that'd be them interesting, that, man. Because you know? a video part, right? A video mm. part, you worked at it mm. and you'd like work at getting your part, you know, and there was a story to it. You'd see people work on the video parts and the, the flight, you know, you might have mm. your, you know, minute, minute and a half and you got like eight, 10, 12, 15 trips. But it tells the story of a season or a couple of seasons or something. Yeah, but you also, and you got to tell, you know, as a writer, you, you could, you know, speak your expression, I suppose, like how mm. you do stuff because you've got to, you know, you, whether you saw those video parts, you know, the writer would work with the editor and like, mm. you know, the flow of it and how you want to deliver mm. like what you were trying to express, I suppose. Because there's yeah. no right or wrong, but it's the style, right? Like, yeah. of how you do it, but then how you present it. And then, then that's all subjective too, isn't it? Yeah. Like, but it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah. um, I mean, it's something I miss a little bit now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know? <laughs> Bunch of old codgers sitting around. <laughs> <laughs> You're back in the bloody day, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we used to use magazines. <laughs> oh, man. That's interesting. Well, it's cool. Uh, Steve, how did snowboarding get into the picture? All oh, right, yeah. So, uh, obviously, um, through skateboarding, I've been in Auckland, then I got invited on a, um, I suppose, just stepping back, I suppose, in, in the Canterbury days, I got dragged up skiing, you know, family ski trip. I was probably done like 10, 15 days skiing uh, when I was like under 10. Um, actually went to Craigieburn for the first time, and my dad's friend who set my skis up, set my skis up real tight, and then I broke my leg up there on the first run because my bindings were set too tight hit a rock and then yeah I was like in a cast for three three months and that was my end of, end of, end of my ski career I think I didn't actually I, I like I like being on the mountain I did not like skiing but but then um, yeah then sort of kind of got swept up to Auckland understood the mountain through a little bit of skiing and then had my skateboarding um, love I suppose and then snowboarding turned up on the scene and I don't know how I discovered it but um, it was a thing I sort of jumped in the deep end and go oh I will like that so I'll just buy a board before I'd mm. done it and there was a thing called the trade and exchange which was a, a newspaper kind of like trade me but not digital and bought a what did I buy a man of Rosignol 160 or something with some uh, Sorrells and like some old Sims bindings that he just drilled in um, didn't know anything about it mm. um, don't even know I think, oh, I don't know, man. It was some weird. Remember those apocalypse movies? Yeah. Was that like eighties or something? I think it was some mid to late eighties. Yeah. Yeah, and there was like monoboarders and skiers and weird dudes in costumes and stuff. Yeah, like some sort of B grade James Bond shit. Yeah, too, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I think somehow I might have seen those, and then I don't know. I don't. I don't actually know how snowboarding came about, but I just thought it'd be cool because it looks like you're skating on the snow, right? So, mm. board a board and went down. Um, I think I must have been in my in sixth form at high school um sort of went and bust out and do a, you know like a weekend ski trip to Ropehu mm. and then went down to Whakapapa and all my friends went skiing and they're like what are you doing man and went up the uh, rock garden straight up the chair first thing and then like just sussed it out and just manhandled it they had no one to watch there was no one on the mountain 
couldn't see Spy, would have been around there somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) The master at the time, I didn't even know about. But um, yeah, there was no one doing it, so I just sort of bounced my way down the rock garden, and Mm. I just worked it out myself, and then just fell in love with it. Mm. And then, yeah, a couple other um, trips to Ruapehu, and then, man, it was like, yeah, I... Sussed it out, and then uh, what happened, man? Like, uh, I think uh, Ruapehu had one of those crazy-ass seasons where they had a summer season. So, oh. Was that when they were, like, riding Christmas Day and shit? Yeah, it was more like New Year's Eve. I think it oh, opened right. after Christmas, like, um, and they, they had, like, sort of a period of seven days over New Year's. Mm. And uh, we spent New Year's down at Whakapapa at the... At the um, I'm just trying to piece the timing together. I should have done a bit of research, but... Mm at the um the Rupahu uh, like um ski club Charlotte Wynn I think this is the timing but I think I was going out with her or something at the time we went right. down there and went down there and it was like what the hell it was like middle of summer with snowboarding and then so I fell in love with it through that summer session I was riding the express at Whakapapa there was enough snow to get down um man I don't know what it's called now, and I think it goes even further. But the one that takes you up to the valley, <clears throat> there was a quad express at the time, and you could ride down there, and there was no one there, man. And so that was sort of the moment that snowboarding clicked, and you're like, yeah, yeah. this is That's this when it clicked, anyway. And then I was like, at the end of high school, and I was like, a lot of my friends were like, I'm going to uni. And I was like, yeah, I should go to uni, because that's what you're meant to do. Mm. I was like, and I, had, I had a friend who was a skier, and he goes, have you heard about Queenstown? I was like, nah, man, what's that? He's like, oh, it's like, man, if you've been to the North Island, this is like way better, man. I was like, crazy. I was like, okay, sounds good. And then made my plan to not go to uni because I love snowboarding. And I felt like if I went to uni, I'd just do okay because there was nothing. I didn't know what I wanted to do at uni. And I saw my friends go, and they're going because you're meant to. And I was like, nah, snowboarding. There was something about snowboarding. I was like, Queenstown that sounds cool <laughs> I was like man okay I'm going to Queenstown I want to do the what I just did in summer I want to do all the time mm. and then that was that was my plan I was just like man I gotta go and do this you know and mm. went on this adventure to Queenstown so can we talk a bit about that adventure because <laughs> was this the time where you rode a Vespa from Auckland to Queenstown uh yeah yeah almost like um <laughs> yeah set sail man to <laughs> Queenstown so I mean, there's so many questions with that. Like, why why a Vespa? Why well, a Vespa? I think through the end of high school, it was like, I've got a scooter. There was like this Vespa culture around. Like, uh, Fat Matt, who, rest in peace, he had this like Vespa shop. He used to tune up like Vespas and, you know, they were mm. kind of cool, man. Like, well, still are. But, mm. the old, you know, old Vespas had an SS90, then a 180 rally, and you just sort of, it was cheap cheap way to get around and like and so you're able to like stack your snowboard on there somehow and no so what happened is like we're off to queensland never been so i set sail on the vespa but to be honest it was my friend harley who also had one as well we put them on a train to wellington oh yeah and then jumped on the train ourselves. got off rode them onto the ferry and I, I rode down from picton to christchurch stopped in there went down to queenstown and this is arriving at Queenstown. So did you go through the Lindus Passway to Queenstown? Yeah. On the Vespa? Yeah. That's kind of gnarly. It was awesome, man. <laughs> it was so cool. So, 
Yeah. I'll dig up a photo. I actually got a couple of photos um, in uh, Tekapo, actually. Um, but yeah, uh, rode a Vespa down to Queenstown, went down there. First time in Queenstown, I remember riding, you know when you come into Queenstown, you come down that hill and you can see the gondola and the, mm. I was like, well, this is like a wonder town. And then got set up, um, tried to find a flat, mucked around for a couple of days, stayed at Backpackers, went to Dunedin and that's, yeah, Charlotte one that was like, who I was seeing at the time she was studying at Dunedin, gapped it over there, rode through Roxborough and it started snowing and I was like, Man, I had like three jackets on, two sets of gloves, and we we're just riding through the snow and vespers, man, trying to get to Dunedin, and then hung out there. Went back to Christchurch to go and do a, like a, a like a, a mountain induction pre-employment course or something. I thought I was going to try and work on the mountains. Did that for two weeks, and then rode back um, from Queenstown, uh, from Christchurch back to Queenstown, and then settled in. Holy shit. We did a big so lap of the South Island, man. It's the mileage right there. That was so cool, man. Sick. And it was so cool to, yeah, so I, I think, I don't even know where my snowboard was, but I, did, I didn't have my snowboard on for that long journey. Um, I think we must have shipped some stuff down, but yeah. uh, but we had our bags and stuff, and I had a sheepskin rug on my seat. I thought it was an easy <laughs> rider, man, but on a Vespa. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, then, um, yeah, so we did that lap. So we did it a few miles. We didn't do it in North Island. But then I, the, the cool thing was I had my Vespa in Queenstown for my first season in Queenstown. So, and I did ride up the mountain with my board on the back. Yeah, like that. So that was your main mode of transport to get up Corros and Remarks and stuff. Yeah. On the. Because Remarks were in the gravel road then, too. Yeah, I went up Coronet more mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. of that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, like. So the first part of the season, you know, it doesn't really snow at Coronet much, and it's, I don't even, did they have snow making back then? Probably not. It was pretty minimal, man. We are up there at the start of the season, like, oh, this is cool, I can just shoot up on my scooter, get up there, and overtaking buses and stuff, and then, and then, um, then one time, we got up there, and it started snowing, and it, this was the first big snowfall, like the real big one, and it snowed, must have, I think it ended up snowing a lot, but like, there was too much snow at the end of the day, and I was like, man, I can't ride this down, this is just cooked, so I had to hitch down. And then dump like 60, 70 centimeters or something. Like one of the big dumps. It was oh, 90, 91, 92, whatever. Right. A great day riding a coronet on that. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, well, then, no, because I came back up the next day and my bike was gone. It was buried. I couldn't find it. <laughs> and Vespers are air cooled, so it was all good. But um, I had to leave the bike up there for like three weeks until the road cleared, man. That was pretty funny. But um, yeah, having a, having a scooter is pretty cool for snowboarding, man. Like, Maybe get knobbly tires next time, man, so you can ride out of the snow. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that was my start in Queenstown, man. I think so, that was 92, eh? 92? And what was um, Queenstown like back then? I mean, it would have been a way different yeah, yeah, town um, to what it is now. Um, yeah, it depends what you look at, eh? Like, hmm. it hasn't changed a bit if you look at the right things. But if yeah. you look at the wrong things, like the Vegas we were talking about earlier, it's, yeah, it's changed massively, man. But, hmm. um, but you know, the beauty of the landscape what it really is and it's geographical like awesomeness is mm. um still always not it's never gonna change man yeah but um yeah the town it's, the town has changed mm. and how was the snowboard scene back then um yeah that first season man what was going on eh? like it was pretty i mean yeah there was yeah it was pretty pretty raw there wasn't mm. much going on. NZ Shred was there, yeah, I believe. Um, it was definitely in its infancy. Um, I feel like the next season it blew up real quick. Yeah, 
Mm. Um, but I, man, who was writing men back then? Eh? Like, so was this like um, Denny? Was like Denny yeah, and those Denny. guys? Like you and Straight would have been kicking around. Yeah, yeah, definitely Denny. <clears throat> on his hooker booger, flying wing. I couldn't, want, I couldn't understand that man. But wow, that was awesome, man. Mm. Uh, but there was a few characters around for sure. But we had a crew like. I actually, the, you know, the guy I rode the Vespa down with, he was a skier. He ended up working for the mountain, doing ski tuning and stuff like that. But um, And then, yeah, dating Charlotte, who was a snowboarder at the time, and Vic Newman was her friend. Then students used to come over. And then Downtown Brown. You know Downtown Brown? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was um, a Dunedin student as well. Studying dentistry or something? Or oh, right. Something like that, man. Like, What's, or he's a doctor. He's a really he's a smart guy, man. I mean, Charlotte and Vic were names I haven't heard in a long time. Yeah. So were, I remember seeing them in a couple of uh, pages of New Zealand Snowboarder back in, like, 93 or something, and then that was about it. Yeah, but yeah. They were still involved in New yeah, Zealand well, snowboarding for a while, eh? Yeah, they, they were. There's, um, they were quite keen on it. And... Um, they eventually ended up studying city snowboards. Mm. Before that, they actually had an outerwear brand called Royale, which mm. um, we're sort of back, going back backwards and forwards a bit. But um, mm. yeah, I think that must have been like 90, 93, 94 or something. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was cool, man. Like, um, yeah, well, I, I don't reckon there wasn't that much happening in that first season. Eh? It seemed like the next season st- things started happening, you yeah. know, like. Uh, I wish I should have done a bit more prep work on like, on, <laughs> on exactly what season was what, but um, yeah. Well, I remember '92 was a really good snow season. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And um, but I don't know if that was yeah you because know, we were sort of coming up from Dunedin a little bit, but that's the total grime. So yeah, '92. What? Yeah, it was mm. crazy. That was when I lost my Vespa. It was like yeah, it seems like the snow level was so low, man, for so mm. long. Now, I couldn't get my bike down there. The mountain because you know coronet which is a low ski field um yeah that was just snow on the road it seemed like the whole season yeah it was crazy man it was so good yeah and holy shit like that would have been an amazing season to ride all the like what coronet's known for now like south yeah. central yeah i mean about all the pipes in the house burst it was like nights where it was minus 16 and stuff Oh yeah, but definitely. I don't know. It yeah. definitely seemed colder back then. Eh? The freezing level was low. The Coronet, again, low ski field. You could always go down to the hairpin, and you know, because we always used to hitch pretty much, and mm. you'd always go to the hairpin. But I haven't seen a season lately where you can ever do. No, that. like maybe straight after a dump for one day or something. But. So I remember, like even like say '95, like the school holidays '95. I was up there for 10 days and like 7 of those 10 days was snow to the valley floor yeah yeah you don't really get that too often now no so I don't know but those those storms like if you look at the past or this winter now man like back then you get the big storms followed by real cold air man mm. and then another system will come and then cold like minus 5, 10 in Queenstown you know mm. whereas now you get this big storm and then it goes warm and then cold and warm I'd hate to think what the snowpack's like eh Everyone's, yeah, well, um, <laughs> be crazy. one of the guys in Wix for me, he's doing his patrol courses as well, and he was saying, man, the snowpack right now yeah, kind of hectic, and even like Ewan and those guys up TC, there's certain areas they're reluctant to open at the moment because they're scared the whole thing will slide right back to Earth still. Yeah. It's like, man, that's, that's gnarly. That's the fluctuation in temperature, right? Yeah. You get a yeah. cold, like a wet snow dome, and then ice up, and then... 
more snow, then heat up, and it's crazy. Remember a month ago we had all that snow, yeah, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, it's a meter!" It's like, yeah, but everyone's forgotten that there's nothing under this. Yeah, warm you know, rocks. Still slab, <laughs> warm yeah. rocks. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, eh? Mm. But um, yeah, Queenstown. Mm, so whereabouts were you living? Were you, were you um? Yeah, was, What's that? Oh, no, I was going to just cut in and say Man Street. Man Street. Oh, yeah, yeah, man. I, I think I've heard um, the, the seasons I did in Queenstown, I, I lived on Man Street a bit. It was mm. a good street. Yeah, right. Just straight there, right by town. There's mm. a few things like it's the 24-hour bakery. Um, at midnight, they did dollar, dollar specials. You go down and get buns. So you stay up to midnight to eat. Mm-hmm. You know, so you could get the... 20. So were you working at the time, or were you just... Doing yeah, um, I worked at Cadrona Cafe, which was in the mall, um, out the back, flipping burgers at the oh, yeah. late night side window. So that was an interesting spectacle, to be honest with you. Like, yeah. It was like the sort of Ferg Burger, it was pre-Ferg Burger, <laughs> like way pre-Ferg Burger, but mm. the same sort of concept of the original Ferg Burger, like yeah. down a lane and off the side, yeah, making I burgers. I've forgotten about the Cadrona Cafe. Oh, you know it? Yeah, I remember it vaguely. Wow. Because I don't think I was like, always be like, oh, Queenstown, but Cadrona, wait, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> yeah, 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 you know? crazy, man. So I did a bit of that and just hustled. I did some, um, it was like a sort of, you know, cheap hotel on Shotover Street back in the day, which we used to go make up beds and stuff. Mm. Just sort of hustled to ride every day. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. And um, what's... Queenstown, I mean, uh, at that time, Sub 20 was starting to pop off, and you became one of the original team yeah. riders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, was, how uh, did that all come about? Um, I suppose, um, you know, Debs and Luca, when they started it, you know, just a small town, we knew them. I think that was even in the first season that started making these, like, fleece, um, uh, what were they, you know, like, like a neck scarf beanie thing with a paw on it. Oh, yeah. I don't know what it was called, but that was what they were doing before Sub-20. I may be wrong, but that's, that was my take on it. And then suddenly turned into Sub-20 with great momentum, eh? Like, and then I was just, yeah, they very kindly offered to uh, fit me out with some product. And I was like, it was so cool, man. Like, mm. just, you know, like, their take on outerwear, um, yeah, it was so fresh. It was like, <laughs> ultra, like a, waterproof canvas like super freaking baggy pants man which you couldn't really buy in new zealand but they they used to freeze up too oh yeah so like <laughs> no, pretty cool man but uh but yeah yeah i got offered i, I th- yeah i was on the team i suppose and um yeah i just got offered some product and just felt part of the you know the community in queenstown there were some good people around us you know tony wolston um the you know the granddaddy of it all yeah um, man, fuck he was uh what the, the og new school guy really wasn't he oh dude man such man so he was like yeah that man that's what got us in snowballing tony wolston man mm. like he yeah so because you were do you get to ride with him yeah 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 so like how was that riding with him at coronet back then like, oh man he just, just picked such a creative line on a mountain man he taught all of us so much um mm. Yeah, he just made snowboarding look so fun, man. Mm. Like, yeah, yeah. And um, him and Paul Trapsky, I suppose, uh, mm. they were living together in the Queenstown Mall upstairs, pretty much around where Cadrona Cafe was, I think, not far from upstairs from that. And then um, it was all when we started drilling boards out to get wide stance. Mm. And it was like, 
if you're not over 25 inches, then you're just yeah an idiot, you know. Yeah. So I was like, <laughs> trappers went out to about 27, I think. Jesus Christ. And then, <laughs> so we're, yeah, it was funny, man. And then we had our sub 20 pants, you know, like these massive baggy pants, man. Mm. Pretty cool. It'd be so cool now, you know. Um, <laughs> it's funny how those trends. Yeah. Um, AJ's got a picture of. He sent me a picture of like the new Huffer jacket and the sub 20 jacket side by side. Like one of the OG ones. Oh, yeah, yeah. He sent me that. Like, Holy man. shit. That's cool, eh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, was this the same year that Tony and Paul borrowed your Vespa to go over the Crown Range? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it was. Yeah, first season Trappers and, um, and Tony Wollstone and Tony House as well. Mm. Um, were all there and there yeah they um they had to go to wanaka i think they were even potentially coming over here for a comp or something mm. and uh because i idolized tony wollston he was like hey man can i borrow you i was like yeah of course you can <laughs> and i was like oh man and um yeah off they went man over the crown range two of them with snowboards i believe on my vespa man jeez <laughs> the crown shit. range wasn't sealed yeah yeah well, yeah yeah it wasn't sealed at all no it was crazy man <laughs> i thought they were gonna go the long way <laughs> they went over the top yeah, that was cool, man. Yeah, I felt I was pretty proud. I was like, yeah, man, Tony, Tony's using my Vespa. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, shit, man, that guy, like, uh, doesn't get enough credit. Nah, no, uh, that's, that's, yeah. He'd like, yeah, he was, uh, he was so quiet, obviously, and um, he never, he, you could tell the way he snowboarded, he was just doing it for himself. He wasn't trying to show off or, you know, get sponsored, and he was just, purely for the beauty of it you know and that, that was the most intriguing thing and that's why i idolized them so much i was like man you just look like you're having so much fun you know mm. and for yourself only which is cool yeah you know yeah. that's why you should be doing it it's pretty yeah. you know selfish sort of sport yeah i guess so that's yeah you don't do it for i mean you and... yeah you do it with your friends but you know the way you express yourself and style you know what is style you know, there's no right or wrong Mm. it's just some people might like this person's style that person's style um and that's fine you know mm, it's all good it's like talking about methods oh man you know it's like fuck I like a Jamie Lynn method I'm on your boat bro the, the, hom- <laughs> the homies I know like a Terrier method but oh no man Jamie Lynn might have said that you know it's like yeah yeah that's you know? cool we, it's cool we could be so passionate because the Terrier method I did not like it at all and still mm. never you know and so many people are so passionate about that I'm like mm. I never actually even liked like amazing writer but mm. I didn't I didn't even like him I didn't, he didn't influence me at all mm. Jamie Lynn did yeah but yeah mm. respect to you Terry, <laughs> if you listen <laughs> but no, no, no mm. you know it wasn't a bad thing it wasn't a negative thing but it was just like mm. oh I just gravitated to Devin Walsh or Jamie Lynn or you know someone just bit more squared out and like yeah a little bit skate influence i suppose maybe or yeah well i was going to ask like who were some of the influences local or international you're looking at snowboard wise man the whole type a team man nate cole man holy smokes man yeah Uh, who i was lucky with i I rode with in tahoe and uh, those type a guys i got to know when i spent time in tahoe but man that movement was like that was it, man. Mm, type for me. was sick too, eh? Oh, man, that was a, such a dude, movement, man. Dude, I, I have a Denny Way type in the bag over no there. No way. Yeah. Jeez. Like, holy shit, Denny Pat Way Duffy, was... man. I met Pat Duffy in, um, in Tahoe and went snowboarding with him. He was obviously, you know, a pro skater, but he snowboarded pretty well as well. Fucking hell. He was hell. A, sort of affiliated yeah. with the Taipei dudes. Yeah. 
Sick. Well, yeah. Because was it Taipei something to do with Plan B or some shit? Yeah, yeah, Plan B, Taipei. Yeah, it was, eh, back then. Yeah. But yeah, that's sort of skipping forward to travelling to America, I suppose. Mm. Oh, right, man. I want to bring it back around to Sub-20 yeah. again, because we can't sort of talk about Sub-20 without talking about what was a pretty iconic Grom squad. Oh, yeah. Of AJ, Leeks, Barnes, and Sam Duvall. Yeah, they all felt like um, um, there was a generation below me a bit. Mm. Um, they were like, they were the Groms, man, for mm. sure. But... The, like they would have been around when you were yeah oh totally man though, like right? for sure they're like um we'd left school we're independent to some degree you know flatting and snowboarding but they were still with the parents and and mm. and ripping you know like going up there but yeah they were definitely a different generation just a bit younger um and yeah cool to see man like the man this is <laughs> i think i've heard you talk about it on a podcast but this is one photo Everybody's sitting on the side of a container or something. There's a digger and oh, it's like the whole on, sub. On the bulldozer. Bulldozer, yeah, yeah that's yeah. it. Man, and uh, I think you might have posted it or something, man, but there's like, it rolls deep, eh? Like, there's a lot I of. I love that picture. Yeah, it, yeah. It sums up to me Queenstown snowboarding in the in the early to mid 90s. Yeah, yeah, that's Perfectly. it. Perfectly. Yeah. And the, the, the crew and everything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a heavy picture. But, um, yeah, it seems. Yeah, that generation became the sub twenty team. I think, like the, the, that those super groms, you know, like they yeah. uh, they all knew each other and, and um, they stuck pretty tight and stayed sub twenty for a long time. It was cool, man. Mm. I mean, it was yeah. rad to see from the outside. Like I was way too scared to say hi to any of them. Oh really? Like, oh man, wow. I, I was a very shy teenager. Yeah, yeah. But like just seeing that from the outside, I can be like, wow, like Queensland's got some shit going on. Like, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool. It's interesting actually thinking about, you know, what, you know, being still involved and having a brand now and seeing what Sub20 did, you know, beyond the outerwear, but what it did, you know, with people, I suppose, you know, Mm. was an identity, you know? Because to some degree, the Sub20 influenced the early days of Huffer. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's the thing. I just thought about it then. Mm. I haven't really thought about it like that, but totally, man, because I... What was happening was, um, I suppose, it gave a sense of belonging. Mm. You know, see that you go to that photo we're talking about. That was like a mad family, man. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And it, it, it brought everybody together. Yeah. And that's cool. And that, we aspire to do that with what I do now with Huffer, but in different ways. But like, I've subconsciously learned that through my history. That's cool, man. Shout out to Sub Twenty. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. Yeah. Well, and no. then you know Sub Twenty went on such a journey, man. It was so cool to watch. Like they picked up, and you know, yeah, I'll definitely get everything wrong, but they definitely picked up some Japanese distribution, um, and yeah, mm, they had that. They had a seconds, you know, like they'd do a big winter in New Zealand, and then suddenly they were getting business in the northern hemisphere and Japan, mm. I think. And then there was a couple of seasons where it was starting to really crank, man. Yeah, oh, so, you know, I was unaware of that. I was just in the war of. I was like, man, that shit's fucking rad, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the squad. What other New Zealand sno- um, snowboard brands around at the time? Like Outerwear brands? Yeah. Um, Remind fuck, me. Well, Sub 20 was there. Sub 20. Uh, 540s. Oh, fi- oh, of course, 540s. What are you thinking? Um, good God. Everyone listening will oh, no, be screaming. Like, Come on, names. man, what are you doing? Because RPM came along a bit later, I think. Yeah, RPM. 
that was probably about the same time as you guys, wasn't it? Pretty close. Yeah, is the RPM even older than Hover? I don't know. Well, close to it, eh? Uh, 95, I think. Yeah, we're 97, so... Yeah. Um, shit, there's a couple more. Groovestar? Groovestar, oh my God. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, Groovestar. Then Royale, which is... Royale. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. was a short, I think, two seasons. And then, because the, there was a few others that sort of came and went pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, but it's a hard game. I think that they were the sort of mainstay. Hmm. Sub-20, 540s, Groovestar, RPM, Huffin. There is other ones, and yeah, there oh. will be listeners that are just... Oh, they'll, they'll be screaming about us. I can't believe you forgot. Fucking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And another Queenstown Shredder I sort of want to ask about. Did you come across Denny Bevan much new time? Yeah, much? totally, man. Like, um, yeah, yeah. He was, um, you know, the hometown hero. Um, yeah, I just have these... Um, yeah, hopefully I'm going to catch up with him in the next couple of days, man. It'd be cool mm. to see him. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he was, the, he was the hometown hero. Local boy, born and bred, mm. eh? Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, he was just a frother, man, up there ripping. Definitely snowboarded different to, to how I did, and that's cool, man. Like, but he, you know, I just can't remember that hooger booger flying wing, man. <laughs> what? <laughs> like what? <laughs> yeah, but, and um, yeah, lots of energy, man. Like a really energetic snowboarder, just rode every every angle of the mountain. Um, mm. Yeah, and then that's what made Queenstown. You know, from Tony Wilson to Denny Bevan to Paul Trapsky to you know um, just you know the, everybody had a different style it was cool mm-hmm. man and then you could just you know mm. so, the influence in the early days because the style was so diverse you could pick your own style I suppose you know because if you're going to ride with a certain type of crew that ride in a certain way you're probably going to ride like them maybe yeah but there was like I know it was a bit. It was a less molded back then to some. So you could sort of pick a bit of this style and a bit of that style and sort of mold your own out of these yeah, influences. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure Denny Bevan would bust out a backflip or something. I was like, what? backflip on a snowboard mm. didn't make sense to me. I was like, what? What? You know? Because mm, he he was into his rodeos and all that stuff, wasn't he? Like yeah, yeah. He had those pretty early, man. That was pretty cool. But I mean, that's interesting because you compare someone like Tony Wilson to Denny Bevan. Yeah. You couldn't probably get two more different styles. Yeah, two of the best you know? snowboarders on the mountain, right? Yeah. And totally different. Totally different. That's so cool. Yeah. But, I mean, that's almost how, back then, like, there wasn't the robotic... Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I don't know where I'm going with this. Robotic is a good word, man. But, you know, but it was, yeah, like... Like you're saying, like you couldn't get two more, but at the same time, that was still relevant. Or Danny Kiwi Meyer, man. Oh my God, total yeah. different style, eh? Wow, yeah. Euro style. Yeah, and he <laughs> and and he rode with Dino. Oh yeah, and what? <laughs> you know, but how sick? That's you know? cool, eh? And um, oh fuck, I mean, I can't believe we didn't actually bring up Danny Kiwi Meyer earlier. Yeah, um, yeah. Fuck that dude, man, legend. Hmm. And yeah, like, like you say, like huge Euro. Yeah, Euro style. Sort of style and strong in his edges and yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, real powerful rider. But then again, to so say like that style, I didn't identify with. It didn't mean I didn't like it, but. We're trying to be skateboarders on the snow, which was very different. So it even take different lines. Which would gravitate more towards Dino or Tony Walston. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I think even uh, Danny said in his interview something 
about how he'd come down and ride with Tony and Dino and be like, oh, shit, i got some work to do. Like, yeah. You know, oh, shit. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> some, it's some, cool, but then, you know, you could, like, I suppose style, eh? you have a style, and then you see someone like um, a Denny who could pick a real good line on a mountain, and you go, oh, cool, man, okay. I can see how you ride that line through that transition, but then you could learn from that and apply your style to it. Mm. And it's just different, not right or wrong, mm. again, you know? So we could. It was a collaboration and a sort of a a, a mashup of all, all the influence around you, or what you yeah. saw. Yeah, yeah. And because I liked in Denny's episode uh, how he was talking about he was he was the, like the Grom of the the time, and yeah. he was showing the international pros around. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there was no park, so the Groms know where all the yeah yeah features are. It's like what a That's cool right, time right. in snowboarding to be like. The Grom showing the heavies around. This is when yeah. you know the international started coming and yeah yeah yeah. Like, there was a man uh, same you know not maybe to the extent of Denny but you know same thing. When, and I remember him talking about it in his podcast. But when any out of towner came through, and especially American, mm-hmm. um, just because at the time they were sort of progressing the sport the most at the time. But man, you just want to be friends with them because like, mm. wow, just learning so much. Sort of like they were, it seems like they were so far ahead um, yeah. with style and like, and and you just want to go riding with them. So we instantly best friends with anybody that came into town. Mm. And then um, we had all the Mount Baker crew came through, man. And wow, just seeing how they rode the mountain. Shit, that'd be a heavy critical. Yeah. So oh man. Who was, who was the Mount Baker crew at the time? Um, there was. Uh, they weren't, weren't necessarily pros. It was like um, just really good riders, man. Like this is a Chris from Never Summer. I can't remember his last name. And it's going back. This guy Greg that used to manage a skate store in Portland. Oh, right. um, and then just guys that lived up at Tahoe, man. And like to be honest, I think they just sold weed, made heaps of cash, and didn't care about sponsorship. And they were mm. just ripped. Mm. You know, like just full gangster snowboarders, man. Like and they just had heaps of cash. Come down to New Zealand, ride. They're better than pros, man. Like seriously, That's coming fun. from Baker as well. I never, I never went to Mount Baker, man. Um, but That's, I could just tell that that mountain, like, just brought up. That mountain would kind of be a pilgrimage for me. I think personally. Yeah. Like my favorite riders, Rankwit and Lynn are from there, and shit, yeah. you know. And, yeah, yeah. But like, that's pretty cool. Like when you get like a. a say like back then you get an international crew yeah you've been riding these lines how you ride them then they yeah. come along and you see them out in a totally different way and flip what you know on, on your head yeah you're like holy shit like yeah wow <laughs> yeah the, yeah through the 90s man the pros came man they just mm-hmm. came every season and you're just like it was so exciting it was so exciting mm-hmm. seeing them and especially someone like Mike Rankle it came, it came through quite, a, quite often and I was got lucky enough to meet him and ride with him and you know them from the video and then they're suddenly writing what you write every day and you're like okay yeah I put it into perspective because like mm. you know you're probably if you hadn't traveled much you're pretty much riding the same terrain mm. and then you see them ride it and then you could try and yeah it's, it's pretty cool go riding mm. with those guys eh? so I remember like hearing about just from skating in Dunedin like the older guys would go up to weekends in Queenstown 
Yeah. Be like, oh, yeah, like, we just skated the vert ramp with Mike Ranquit and Danny Way. Like, <laughs> fucking what? You know, and John Cardiel. Like, yeah. What? You know. They always came through, eh? The super pros. <laughs> yeah. That's it. And, um, oh. man, Queenstown was just like, there was a time, it must be like 94, 95, of just, man, every American pro came to town. It was just packed. Every bar, man, just loud Americans being obnoxious, smashing shit, and like, getting hammered, drunk. They were all pro. That was like snowboarding. It was like, everybody was pro everybody was getting paid heaps the industry was just ramping up mm. you know like before it crashed but yeah. it just seemed like oh man and it, they just all came to New Zealand off season and just mm. got drunk and snowboarded <laughs> it was crazy man mm. Queenstown was like and I'm sure in Monaco as well but it just seemed like well I think at the time oh, Queenstown right. was more the epicenter yeah before yeah that, and Monaco was sort of a bit more low key yeah 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 for, for yeah. the scene I suppose yeah yeah well, someone will correct me on that, and they're oh, more totally. than welcome to. No, it would have seen on Americans, but yeah, I'm sure there were some undercover Americans coming out here doing some mad shit. But and because well. one international guy that came to Queenstown, I've got to ask you about, is Dave England. Dave, oh yeah, uh, who was better known as Jackass, but yeah, was actually yeah. a pro snowboarder back in the day. Yeah, yeah, wow. Um, so Dave England, he came, he came out. Um, I'd say he's like. Oh, he was sponsored by Joyride at the time, maybe. Um, mm. He came out. I remember watching him in videos, and like he was like, in my box, he was like top ten, sort of, you know, for that style of freestyle riding. And then I met him. He came out um, in the off season, like all the pros did. And then he started dating um, a Kiwi girl that we knew. Um, and then he came back to New Zealand. A couple of seasons um, because of that and keep coming back and then um, then it was my first time to America I was like I'm going I'm gonna go I'm gonna go do my first Northern Hemisphere season and um, and I went to Squaw Valley and through knowing Dave I had the opportunity to get let in I suppose and I could stay at his house um, mm. um, so I got to know Dave pretty well man and um, I went to you know, got, to, got you know, first time to America, man. Just get off a plane, gap it up to Tahoe, and get to Dave's house. And he goes, "Just come stay with me, and we'll suss it out. You'll find somewhere to stay." And then, yeah, I went riding at Squaw Valley, man, and I was like, it was, um, I was just blown away, man. Mm. I don't know if anybody's been there. You know how freaking good that place is. And he just looked down the valley floor, and I put my board outside, and then came in into the house. Um, and then his dog attacked someone <laughs> and they, they they were really aggro man they came and they I, I think there might have even been a gun involved or something I was like man this is America this is crazy and someone's like whacking on the door and I, blah, blah, blah. I was like whoa 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 and then the cops were really called or something I was like what the hell this is my first night and then <laughs> and then it sort of calmed down and then I went outside and my board had gone <laughs> oh, no. yeah it was crazy man but um, that was my first experience in America. But that was Dave England welcoming welcoming me into USA, <laughs> Tahoe. That was cool, man. Mm. But yeah, so I'm I'm still friends with him today, oh, and yeah. Um, yeah, I like uh, whenever I go to the states, I try and see him. But yeah, obviously um, he had a career through um, through snowboarding, and then what's the magazine man like Big oh, Brother Big Brother yeah. yeah and Blunt and Blunt magazine yeah. yeah he was the editor of Blunt and then right. he's so creative and so smart that guy man it's amazing it's mm. like it's funny you could sit in this room and you could just 
have so much fun in here, man. It just it's hard to explain how he, <laughs> mm. how creative that guy really is, man. Mm. He's just born to entertain. Eh? So mm. I remember reading about him doing a drunken um, horizontal bungee in Queenstown on the skateboard. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's cool. He just he's like a like so smart, but he's got the kid of yeah. Sorry, sorry, a mind of a kid. Eh? Mm. And he'll just. Um, you know, sit in this room and make the most funnest thing out of nothing. Mm. But yeah, cool, cool to see him bring out the latest Jackass movie. You know, mm. um, the old guy still got it. You know, yeah, um, and it pretty, went pretty well at the box office too. Mm. But yeah, he was a massive influence. Hey, Dave, knowing Dave was cool, man. Well, knowing Dave still is cool. And mm. um, yeah, I got a massive amount of time for that guy. I say. And bringing it back to Queenstown a little bit, um, were you you were involved with the BOA guys like Ants and Rob Johnson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, BOA, so yeah, I was lucky enough to get a job in a snowboard store, you know, it was the mm. ultimate, you know, you could, you know, I, I think BOA at the time did rentals as well, and you could rent, you could do the shift from seven to nine in the morning, come back at work at four and do four to eight or something, there's a split day right in the middle, but no, it's cool, anyway, Ants, Anthony Jones, um, a lot of people know, um, started, it's back in Okuni. Um, I think it was called BOA then, Board of Authority, and then opened a second store in Queenstown, and then eventually closed down Okuni, and then a guy called Steve George and him set up BOA anyway. Yeah, so I got a part-time job there, mm-hmm. and wow, what an amazing experience. It was in, in the, um, if you, anybody knows where the Rhino Ski Shack is, mm-hmm. which is a bar in Queenstown, it was um, down there, so it's a half underground off the Queenstown Mall and it was long and narrow it felt like it was the size of a train carriage oh, yeah. <laughs> and shaped like it you know and there's this underground snowstorm man it was and just so like cool. real Coraz sort of thing yeah Coraz the best brands like um yeah man we had this funny thing man like when we worked there i can't remember what the number was if you did three or five grand's turnover on a day it was a bottle a bottle of tequila oh yeah that was the sort of the <clears throat> bonus or whatever but Quite quickly, you know, the store started getting crazy. All the Japanese started coming through. Mm. Um, you know, back then you'd have off-season Japanese snowboarders, like clans of them coming through. Oh, an army of them. Yeah, it was crazy, yeah. man. It was awesome. And then, um, but yeah, they'd just come in and start buying so much stuff and then we'd just always hit this target. And you're like, oh my God, we're going to drink a bottle of tequila. It was like <laughs> five nights in a row. You're just like, oh. Well, I think we had to change the limit. But, but yeah, it was, a, I mean... Yeah a little bit irresponsible these days you probably wouldn't get away with it so much but yeah it was a good culture and the fact that not you can hammer on tequila but um we really lived and breathed it you know like Mm. ants laid down a pretty good um yeah he was very inclusive and you know he'd be drinking the tequila with us you know yeah it was mad days man yeah you know (laughs) it was was serious and you know it was going like that snowboarding was booming um the store was booming it was just the good times there Mm. and it's a great way to meet people as well so you see people on the mountain yeah man I just lived on Coronet Peak or Remarks but mostly Coronet to be honest and then in BOA and that was yeah. my life and it was freaking cool so, and um, was there a bit of a rivalry between um, BOA and NZ Tree? oh shit yeah yeah <laughs> yeah BOA was way better <laughs> <laughs> yeah because how many I mean it was BOA the, the second real snowball store after NZ Trade, I, I don't know. It must be. Yeah, pretty I much. Ish, eh? And then, and it, because it was new, 
um, you know, it was a fresh start, so you could get cordless brands and like mm. it was, um, you know, NZ Thread had quite a bit of other stuff happening and a bit of a, I just, I, I, I thought it was the coolest store. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and we had, you know, we had good people working there and it was like, you know, we played a bit of music. <laughs> <laughs> But that's that. That's how. That's how good it was. I sort of. It feels like home, you know. Like, I want to fight for it, you know. That's how mm. good it, good it was, you know. So yeah, shout out yeah. to Ants for doing that, and Steve George actually at the mm. time, you know. And good. then Ants is now holding it down with Quest. Yeah, yeah. What yeah, a long right. legacy, man. She's mm. got to get Ants on the show, man. He's got stories, man. That guy, cheapest. Mm. I've been badgering him about yeah, it. Yeah, get on there, Ants. Come on, man. Mm. You got some stories. <laughs> um, yeah, and through, so I must have worked there quite a few seasons, like part time, and then I actually spent it one season. I lived with Ants as well um, at his house or at a flat or whatever, um, and spent a lot of time with that guy. Man, it's cool. Mm. We're into our cars. Um, well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Was um, you and him were did a bit of rally driving with Datsuns or something? Yeah, yeah. So I didn't, uh, I, I didn't live in Queenstown in the summer, so I'd always, you know, go back and. If I went up to the US, you go through Auckland and do what you did, but always come back with a new car for the winter, and we're just trying to get the most badass rally car um, <laughs> for the season. And the big, the best track, man, is just just anybody now just buy snow tires, man, for winter. They're like so good. So we just get a rear wheel drive. I had Datsuns back in the day. I had a Mazda three two three turbo four wheel drive with um, with. Uh, <laughs> Sound like a bogey, man. But it had, uh, <laughs> but I had, um, it had snow tires on it, and um, man, we just just loved driving. You know, it was a bit, bit loose back then. You know, it was like sort of get away with a bit more. But um, yeah, there was this one pre-season, pre the mountain opening. I came down with my car. I think I had a Datsun 1600. Had an 1800 engine in it. Had snow tires on it. Had a dogleg five-speed gearbox, which was really good for that sort of driving because second third changes uh, up and down mm. um and then yeah. yeah we went in this autocross at queenstown car club and then i think ants used my car as well entered the production stock class and i won it <laughs> i won it man it was so cool so, i remember putting a helmet on my car going well we're getting serious now man this is cool yeah it was basically a, a, a paddock race you know like a lap and a paddock where you're um you're timed you know but mm. i won it <laughs> we loved it yeah and then you know then that translated to the the ski field um road you know um yep yeah, just yeah man it was more fun almost driving up the roads than snowboarding <laughs> and, uh, seriously i get to i get up the mountain and go how oh, i just go to the cafe now and just like, chill and have a glass of water for a second <laughs> we had that road the coronet road it got it down you know there's mm. just the flow of the corners like so cool compression locks down into the hairpins to pre-slide into the corner like, <laughs> it was so cool man did put the shits up a few tourists then yeah we purposely picked up hitchhikers just to freak them out a bit because <laughs> they, they look at your car going what no chains and you, you I don't know you got see snow tires are so good there's so much grip mm. but um and you could drive pretty confidently on the snow and if you're used to sliding around a bit you know and yeah. a hitchhiker from out of town or something they're just going what the hell <laughs> anyway yeah I love it man. it's so cool and um well, my, myself, I sort of started to associate you more as a writer for the brand Silence back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how did the writing for Silence come about? Yeah, well, I suppose before that, I actually got sponsored by Ride Snowboards um, okay. through Russell Riddell. Um, he, he was the distributor at the time. 
um, and I got yeah I got flowed aboard or something, and then um, yeah the silence came uh, from a trip to America um, when I took my ride snowboard up there. It got stolen in that affair I was talking about before at Dave England's house. The first day I got there, my snowboard got stolen out the front when his dog tried to eat someone. Um, and I didn't have a board. So Dave, Dave England was an owner in Silence. Um, and he said, oh, don't worry, man, I got a board. Take one of my boards. And then he actually called the factory and they shipped me out a couple boards. Um, so I just transitioned into having some Silence boards through Dave. And Dave being totally involved with silence, so so that happened. Then I then I hung out in Tahoe, and I was just riding silence. And then Blaze, who we talked about before, mm. um, he was a local rider there. And then just I suppose getting to know some of the Taipei guys there as well, and uh, Squaw, and I don't I, yeah I don't know what happened. I just got some boards really, and then somehow Dan Gosling, um, who set up um, Stem distribution what it, what it is now i suppose um and and he i didn't know him yet but he set up he started importing silent snowboards through dave england's girlfriend there was a connection to new zealand and he i don't know dan but somehow i knew the girl that dave england was seeing the kiwi and he goes oh well, that's cool silence i'm going to import them uh, and distribute them so i got introduced to dan gosling through dave england through silent snowboards and then dan started distributing silence and then i i was already kind of sponsored by them or dave really and then he goes oh okay cool i better meet you and then he was still half work, i don't know he's living in london or something so i ended up selling the boards i was like oh i could help you out and then i filled my car full of snowboards and sold them around the country right. on the first season so, oh, so you were kind of the sales dude as well. I was well a rep, a yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, so I met Dan's dad. And I was like, where's Dan, man? He's like, oh, he's in London. I was like, well, what, hang on, what are we doing? He's like, I'm sort of the team writer. And like, and then I took the sample boards on the way to Queenstown and sold them in. And then communicated with Dan via fax in London or something. <laughs> it was so <laughs> weird. I don't know how it happened, man. And then so that happened. And then so uh, then I got boards. And then, then the silence team came down. So... Um, they came down for a trip and then the team manager came down and then that whole coronet thing you know they came up and we I showed them you know our terrain and where to ride and all that stuff and then they invited me on a heli and they're um, they're going to do I was shooting some photos or something and they go oh Steve this New Zealand science guy should come and then um, I was in the camper van to heli somewhere and then Trent the team manager goes oh man you, do you want to be on the team and I was like, what on the American team? I was like, holy shit, you don't even know me, man. And um, it was so loose, man. And he goes, yeah, come up to America, man. And like, we're fucking, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. And then um, got paid a very small salary. Like, he offered me, like, a salary. I was like, are you sure? Anyway, I went up, went up there and, yeah, the next season up into America and then went into the science factory, got boards, and I got paid, man, like, a little bit. yeah. <laughs> And uh, for a bit, you know, nothing crazy, man, at all. But I was like, wow, this is cool. And then, yeah, so that's how that happened. It's very, very loose, man. And I just like carry as many boards back into the country as I possibly could and sell those. And mm. you know, I was just hustling snowboards, eh? But oh, Silence, it was a cool brand, man. Yeah, yeah. And it was super cool. Had a pretty rad team as well. 
yeah, Brad yeah. Smith and those dudes. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. Yeah, and um, was Brad Plamus involved in? Now, so Brad, Plamis? Brad and Dan Gosling. Um, so Brad came up to America with me, and Dan Gosling had a house. So this is after I met Dan in Silence and stuff, and then did another season up at score and Dan had a house and then I was like oh can I bring my mate Brad <laughs> he goes come stay at the house you know and like I had a room and then Brad and myself shared a room in the house with Dan and I suppose Brad met Dan through that mm. and Brad Brad man he knows man dude he's a guy to get on the podcast yeah I'll be trying to find him on Instagram but oh man I'll track yeah. I'll get that guy man I talked to him last week <laughs> But man, he, dude, he knows the whole snowboard industry, man. Mm. He's crazy, man. He's such a networker, eh? Like, wow. It's so funny. We're like sharing a room in America, in America. I was, I was on the Silence US team and he didn't, he rode, but like he knew all the pros in town, man. He'd be at the house hanging out and such a great so, networker, eh? Right. I just remember going, you know, like all the type A guys would be having parties at the house and Brad's like best mates with all of them. I was like, dude, what are you doing, Brad? <laughs> Rad. Oh, that's um, cool. I had no idea it was an international thing. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, pretty, pretty. Mm. I wouldn't say it was the most official thing, but yeah, it was cool, mm. man. And then, yeah, so Brad, and then Brad and Dan met through that, I suppose, and then they, they combined forces. I think Brad was, um, started distribution as well. He had, he had Foursquare and um, Special Blend and all those brands. Mm. Um, through his networking, he sort of met the right people and, set a business up off his networks of uh you know and then eventually forum snowboards um and then dan was doing silence and he moved in dan got uh audio sh- skate shoes oh yeah and then brad had circa and then they i think they just joined forces and it became yeah. substance mm. i think is what they called the business and then they started doing they got insight the surf brand oh, yeah. subi which is a sort of a you know australian fashion brand to some degree they expanded well did they get some? anyway yeah and then they sort of after a while went went back out off on their ways again so mm. they came together for a few years anyway oh sweet and uh, yeah. one one thing I wanted to ask you about was how did you end up becoming Mike Rankwitz stunt double on the Sprite oh man jeez man yeah it was crazy eh like wow I did some crazy things with snowboarding back then like mm. I just I don't know I had a bit of luck eh like so by meeting Mike Ranquit, you know, these pros coming through town, mm. he's this goofy. Um, and then, so he'd come down to film this massive Sprite ad, man. It was like crazy budget, 35 mil film at the time, which cost about 10 So billion. they filmed it in New Zealand? Yeah. Oh, right. Huh. Yeah, maybe because of the season thing. So mm. they had a full, like, movie crew. It was like huge buses and the Kadrona car park and stuff. And anyway, so the, the story goes... You know, because he'd been down and I'd snowboarded with him, and um, they they had two units. So you know, in big films, they have first unit, second unit. Second unit's like action unit. Mm. First unit's like you know, dialogue speaking, or whatever. So the whole idea is he snowboards down the mountain, um, and then crashes into a, a sprite machine and goes, and then cracks open a sprite, and they're like, wow, wow. Mm. There's, there's something more to it than that. But he's, oh, he's, I remember it. I mean, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Do you really? Sure. He, or maybe it was you, jumps off the helicopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shreds around. 
Yeah. And the narrator's like, what do the world's best snowboarders drink? The same as and, the... And, and he's drinking a that's Sprite. It. And some guy plows past, boom, into the Sprite machine. And then the narrator's like, the same thing as everyone else. The same. You know? That's the exact yeah. thing. Yeah. And I remember the first time seeing that, I laughed my ass off. Like, that's right, man. Yeah. Your memory's so good. That's the ad. Mm. Same yeah. as everyone else. Yeah. So he was like, you know, he was like top five in the world, right? Mm. In my box. Yeah. I totally oh, he was a superstar, right? A lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. At that time, for sure, man, and um, and then uh, so because the budget was like five hundred grand a day or something or whatever, some stupid big budget movie, uh, sorry, uh, TV ad with a film crew. Um, they the most important thing was him cracking that can of Sprite, his mm. face because mm. he's him, he's the star. Mm. Um, they couldn't afford to film another day. So they needed to keep second unit going while first unit going. Mm. So they needed someone to do the stunts for Mike Ranquit. And then yeah. I get this call. And they go, I'm like, you know, I don't I don't take the numbers too seriously. It was like, how quick can you get to Cadrona for five grand a day or something? He's like, fuck. <laughs> so quick, man. <laughs> I was like, what are we doing? And um, yeah, I just woke up man, in Queenstown and like, Riley drove over the Crown Range van and got to Cadrona, rolled up to the car park there. whole top car park was just full of film crew, it seemed. And I was like, what's going on, man? He's like, well, Mike Ranquit, um, we're in this tricky position, and he's requested and asked if you could do it. I was like, what? Because <laughs> I was goofy, you know? And mm. he, he'd seen me, and he was like, well, that's the only option. I know Steve. He's a local writer. He's goofy, so he's got to be the guy, you know? That's also pretty flattering to think. Yeah, you know, if a guy like Rankwood thinks you're capable, then whoa. Well, you know, his toolbox was probably pretty shallow at the time. Mm-hmm. He's like, I was probably just the only goofy writer around. <laughs> 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 but, um, but I'll take it, man. I, I got I got the job, and it was a couple of days' work. But um, yeah, I rolled up and go, what's going on, man? And they go, okay, your wardrobe's over there. That's that bus, and that's that helicopter. So you're going to go up there, and you're going to go for the Arcadia shoots, and you're going to jump out of the helicopter. And, like, and I was like, what, what, what? And they're like, quit, okay. And I was like, in a rush too, it was all. So I had to go in, like, put on all the stuff and dress up like him. And even, I was like, man, can I set up the board right or something? They're like, no, it's just quick. And I was like, too short or something. I was like, fuck, what's going on, man? And then before you know it, I'm in a helicopter with the door removed. And then they had, like, on the upturn of the ski, there was, like, a foam pad they put on it. And I had to, so I was like, had my board balanced on that, one hand on a handle and a bit of rope that tied on. So I was like flying out like that. Like, you're just going to go to the arcade shoes. And they had a film crew in the shoes. They dug out, you know, those 35 mil cams. Mm. They had the big movie cameras, man. <laughs> I was like, how the hell do they get all that up there? And there's like, you know, the director and the dude in the snow. And then I was like, oh my God, what have I got myself into? And we're up above the arcade shoots and it was all windy, man. I was like, you know, I jumped off some relatively reasonable sized rocks and stuff like you know 30 footers or hopefully even bigger but you know you always got a bit of forward momentum you know and mm. then you land on your towel and like you know i could do a rock drop you know but then i get up there and it's like hovering like 30 feet above the arcade shoots and then they're down there and they're like right action and i'm like what the fuck helicopter's like moving around i'm like oh my god and then the pressure of like the whole film crew i was like i gotta go man it's jumped I think I tried to grab Indy or something and then landed and because I had no form momentum I just fucking cartwheeled and went um, through one of those chutes there and like cartwheeled off another rock oh, I was so lucky huh. and then just went I just got to the bottom and I, I wasn't breathing for one I was just hanging out of this helicopter jumping into the chute 
I was like, oh my god, man! There's so many people watching me like do this, and then I had to ride down to the where did I go, man? Somewhere in the helicopter, they had to go pick me up, and we had to do it again and again and again. And holy shit! I got a sar, so you just gonna lean back a bit more, man, because you're not moving forward. And then, um, and then, but the cool thing was like that was sort of relatively extreme. And then they had to film it from leaving the helicopter so then they had to put the camera in the helicopter and then so all day i was in the helicopter man jumping out of this helicopter and sometimes and the landing wouldn't have been that soft either would it oh no it was all right man it was i I lucked out it was like sort of powdery you know yeah um but the cool bit later in the afternoon when they had to get the shot going out of the helicopter they were just like five or ten feet above the backside of cadrona and then I'd land, and they couldn't pick me up until the valley floor, pretty much. So oh. I had a heli run, and then the helicopter would be waiting. I'd put my ass back in, do it again, do it again, do it again. <laughs> so cool, man. And then, then I had to do like a backside three or something, um, and land on this bit of perspex that I dug in. Like there's a camera under a bit of perspex. So they wanted the shot, like a backside three, just coming down, boom, onto the, basically into the camera. Mm. And they're like, okay, well, we've got to get this right. Every sheet costs two grand. I was like, holy shit, man. So much pressure. The whole day I was like, this is so intense. And then, uh, yeah, I did that a few times. I had to get a few sheets and, like, different angles and stuff. But, yeah, it was cool, man. Holy shit. That's that's pretty out of it, man. That's, yeah. uh, I guess, a good insight into um, into the world of corporate snowboard filming for, for big, yeah. big ads and well, shit. Well, this other one then. So mm. I, was, I felt very lucky to get there because mm. it gave me some finances to get back to America, right? Mm. And then I don't, know, I don't know what order of seasons, but maybe it might have been the next season or the season four. I got cast from like a feature film. Oh, like yeah. um, this is a movie called Ice Blue. So again, this man, this financially ended up pretty good, man. Like, mm. And so... Um, that's when I can I could call myself a lightly a professional snowboarder because I I managed to get some money from it you know mm. like and not tr- you know a little bit through sponsorship but other opportunities would come my way man like so I was in this Japanese feature film like full spec like full movie crew and the story goes um, <laughs> four students from equivalent to high school come down to Queenstown and then on their holidays and then they go back to go to university. But one stays in Queenstown, this guy, and then those guys, the movie starts when they graduate from university, they come back to New Zealand to revisit their friend who's become a Queenstown local snowboarder. Mm. I was that dude's rival. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, a full Japanese, and then, so it's a love story as well, and I I got the part, it was me, I was like, oh, this is cool, it's just some snowboard stunts, we're going to jump off some things, go through some jumps, and... And then, um, but I had a acting part, so it was all in Japanese, but the English speaking parts were, because it was set in Queenstown, would have had Japanese subtitles, but, so I fall in love with, well, this chick, one of the chicks, who's, you know, and then, oh my God, man, uh, and then, um, who's friends with a rival of mine, and we have a snowboard off, you know, he's all real pissed off at me, because I'm like, I'm like... Ma- macking on one of his like friends and then I had this scene where I had this big Chevy Impala man and I roll up to this there's a camera on a crane and stuff and I had to get out in front of the headlights and drop her off at her house and she's like oh I think my name was Dennis hey Dennis I love you or something. And I had to kiss her in front of the lights I was like oh my what am I doing man there was definitely some legit snowboarding to some degree but far out man 
<laughs> the things you do, eh? Out of it, man. Yeah, but that, that was cool, man. That was like a 10 days work or something, man. Like being in a movie. And then I remember hanging out in their caravans and the actual stars were the Shorten Street equivalents um, in Japan, you know? They were yeah. quite famous. So I didn't know who the hell they were, but like, they were like, yeah, we're famous. And I was like, well, I'm going to hang out in your caravan. And I'm like, that's pretty cool, man. All right. And I did an ad for Toyota as well. We had to, um, yeah, just raving on about these things now, man. Mm. But yeah, um, the new Toyota Surf up at Snow Farm, we had to jump over this car. Um, is there, there's a per- percussion band called Stomp in the UK, I think. Oh, Quite yeah. famous. Yeah. And the idea was that on the mountain playing these drums, like, and then the car comes flying around, they go, Whoosh! and they're like, hey, let's jump on our skis and snowboard. Woo! And we like fly down the mountain and jump over the surf that's doing a skid or something like so this must I was be like nice. how do I get those jobs there <laughs> it's so cool like, so no, weird like, pretty out of it like that's pretty cool yeah I guess so that was, was like, it funded me it like, helped fund me do what I wanted to do you know it yeah. somehow got these random jobs eh? like, was that sort of at the peak snowboard industry at the, the peak the, the, the first peak of um, growth uh, everything was yeah 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 you know when it, it's sort of everybody was sponsored so that mid, <laughs> mid to late 90s yeah yeah sort of, so oh no earlier earlier, earlier. yeah yeah more hmm. like 94 95 alright oh, 93 hmm. 94 95 96 hmm. yeah maybe mid I see yeah well, but that, that was a time when you know I remember going to America and I was like every single person sponsored how does this work well, <laughs> like a pay pick up a trans world at that time it's like 300 pages mm-hmm. and like a lot a lot of ads of um flash in the pan brands and all that sort of shit yeah 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 um well we can't have you on without talking about huffing yeah 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 um can we talk about like how did like what was the inspiration behind we sort of touched on like sub 20 yeah yeah like what was your inspiration behind the start of huffer in yeah, well, that's yeah. It was um, it was the nineties, like mm. the nineties, like um, pretty quite weird. It's like on trend at the moment. You know, nineties are trendy hard, but um, it, because it was such a good time, you know. Mm. But yeah, I suppose growing up, you know, thinking back to skateboarding, discovering snowboarding, but not even those sports, but what was happening, you know, like. The way we interacted with pe- people, the music we listened to, you know, like punk music, rap music was exploding. Um, you know, there was Acid House and like everything was colourful and like, mm. um, you know, skateboarding ruled the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, snowboarding immersed on the set. You know, like yeah. that, that whole idea of... Um, and then flannel shirts. Yeah. Nirvana, you know. Like, and people hung out, I mean, man. Like, there was, like, clans of people. Yeah. Whatever you did, it was, like, always with a lot of people. Mm. You know? Like, um, more so than that. Like, it really, I think there's so many tools in modern world to connect with people, which there's positives about it. Mm. But then back then, you know, you had to actually hang out. So, you know, like, um, well, the, the 90s, the early early 90s of growing up influenced Huffer, you know, to mm. it started in '97, right? 25 years ago. Yeah. But it didn't just start out of thin air. It was through the influences of uh, Dan Buckley and myself, mm. and our lead up to '97. Everything we learned through the '90s. Yeah. And the life we lived and the cultures we were involved with. Yeah, right. Was is what shaped the start of it, you know? 
It's interesting. It's sort of you just got me thinking. Then, like, I grew up in Dunedin skating in the nineties. Yeah. Because there wasn't the whole social media worldwide web. We, yeah. The way skating was in Dunedin was its own thing, and I mean, we'd go to Christchurch, and they were doing it so differently. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, this. Oh, wow! I never even thought about it, and then so on and so forth. And I thought well, it was kind of cool, kind of like what we were saying about snowboarding before. Yeah. Um. But um, and Huffle initially started as a snowboard outerwear brand. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So. So um, through the, through the nineties, I've been influenced and living that culture. And, and loving it, man. It was the best times. Um, um, so Dan, Dan was a, an extremely good skateboarder, mm. and probably still is. But um, he, um, I managed to be lucky enough to skateboard with him through the nineties, you know. Mm. And he he had actually um, he'd snowboarded a bit as well, mm. you know, like the mid nineties. You know, that was, that was my snowboard career to some degree, or the, <laughs> and um, so. Uh, we had this mutual respect for each other's talent to some degree, mm. and then um, I think through, you know, through sub twenty, my experience there, and then what quickly, I moved on to Royale, this uh, clothing, outerwear brand that these two girls started that um, I got sponsored by. Um, Dan was um, studying a design course, and um, through skate and snow, I suppose. I think Dan was asked to help out with some of the designs and then I was a team writer so we collaborated and helped Royale together to put some outerwear together and put a range together that made sense to snowboarders. Mm. Not The girls, Vic, there was Vic and Charlotte Wynn from City Snowboards um, who, who went on to start City Snowboards which turned into City Skateboards I think they changed mm. the name to in Newmarket there in Auckland but um, so knowing Dan through skateboarding collaborating on someone else's project at the time then Dan d- continuing his studies um, came up with the idea to do snowboard outerwear for one of his projects mm. um, and then I remember going to a studio asked me in to talk about designs and because uh, you know, I was doing maybe I don't know a couple hundred days a year snowboarding or whatever mm. it was um, and then I was just seeing what was being created and I was like wow man this is so exciting like what and then got real excited to be involved with it and then we're just like hang on man what are we doing this is we're gonna this is not a school project man like let's put everything together and make it something you know so mm. you know we're light on assets <laughs> and yeah. uh, we you know on the smell of oil, oily rag put our assets together and incorporated a business um and like worked our ass off to make a sample range to sell. Mm. So the thing I, I mean, remember when Huffer came onto my radar, which a couple of years after. Yeah. Thing that I th- I found quite, <clears throat> I guess, endearing for lack of a better word, was that it was like, oh, we got this. It's it's run by guys that you got one of the best skaters and one of the best snowboarders, and as someone that skates yeah. and snowboards, that was just like worth its weight in gold. You know, I was like, oh, that's. I'm gonna follow like I'm I'm down, you know. And oh man, that's so cool to hear. Yeah, like, um, and we we were like you, like it was a, it wasn't about you know it was, it was about creating a movement that um that gave people an identity. I suppose like mm. um you know 
bringing people together that that you know the their form of expression like creating products that had that functionality and that you know the challenge in doing that was so exciting you know like mm. and you know just to to make a t-shirt it, it's still hard but mm. you know to make something that actually works it was an excite you know it's exciting when especially snowboard outerwear when the zips in the right place they they you know things work the details mm. like the tech features they're just like you nerd out on this stuff eh? so it was like so exciting but then at the same time having having a silhouette or a colorway or with that functionality mixed together to you know you know there was really limited options of what you could get on the hill and it was mm. like we, no one we didn't want to dress like skiers yeah there was some other outerwear there but like mm. let's just make exactly what we want to make for ourselves yeah. to express who we are Suspe- and that just happened to you know align to other people like we lived and breathed yeah. skateboarding and snowboarding and so that what that translated into was product that um other people that were living that lifestyle would identify with and that was our patch yeah and it brought people together yeah and that was that was what it was about the challenge of the technical aspect and the expression and flair that gave people identity yeah mixed together yeah and especially like like you sort of saying about the 90s like sort of back then especially in snowboarding like if you've seen another snowboarder you were friends like if you've seen someone with a Burton mm. sticker on the car like you were, you were homies yeah totally you know and yeah. it's you know and whereas now it'd be people would think that was kind of weird well it's know? like shared values like, right yeah because if you see Burton right and especially back then when snowboarding is such a minority you're like mm. cool man that yeah. person knows what's up. Like enough that you painted Burton on your wall and hung yeah, with yeah, shit. yeah. So my first, my first flat in Queenstown. <laughs> like man, wow, so mm. funny thinking back. But yeah, I was influenced by Burton, I suppose, um, in '92 or whatever it was. Uh, who wasn't though? Yeah, I like, mean, they're the leaders, right? It was a pretty powerful. I mean, it's still a powerful brand now, but especially back then, it yeah. was, you know. Oh, totally. And then so yeah, and. I couldn't afford it. I don't. You couldn't get stickers, so mm. what? I just like I got a magazine and found the logo and like hand sketched it on the wall and like d- like you know hand sign writing on my bloody wall. <laughs> I just want to have burden on my wall <laughs> for me, you know. No one comes to your bedroom, yeah. really. Yeah, you know, like that was for me. But that was some identity shit, right? You look at that, and you're like, that's me. That's my yeah. Mm. Which- it's almost religious, eh, in a weird way. But that's, weird, also, man. but that's also how, like, the early days at Huffer, the three dots, it's like, that guy either skates or snowboards that I see that T-shirt on. Yeah, you yeah, know, like, yeah. Yes. You yeah. know, like... Totally. That's us. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, the, yeah. even the meaning of uh, of the three-ball logo, like, it's like you can, you know, it's, it's a beautiful, simple thing, but... Um, it stands for our values you know and it's like you know as you grow it's harder to sort of communicate your values it can be harder to communicate your values but it's like you know I, I align to those values or mm. yeah oh, cool and can we talk about what actually goes <clears throat> as someone that's used out of a lot over the years yeah I don't really know much about what goes into manufacturing outerwear like oh, yeah, design yeah. cost and can we yep. talk about that about like what's actually I, mean, I don't know it's just as a consumer it's easy to take for granted You're like oh here i am i've got this red jacket yeah but 
there's more to it than yeah there is that you know like can we I, I, I don't really know where to start with this one but yeah yeah well um, the primary function is to um, protect right mm. <laughs> keep dry and warm yeah. um, so yeah, there's so many elements that it's like I remember the first in our first range in 97 that you know, there was a jacket that had 92 panel pieces, right? So if you if you if you got any garments on right now, you can see any where any seam is, like mm. you know that's part of a panel. So it's like mm. a jigsaw. You know, you, you lay the fabric uh, flat and you put the pattern pieces down, cut it all up and sew it all together, and that creates your jacket. But yeah, one of our jackets had 92 panels to it. You know, holy shit! You know, because all the pockets yeah. and zips and like vents and things like that, which we had in our first very first range. Uh, so it's very technical, you know. Not mm. even so, to to design something that worked and functioned like that, and was waterproof, and looked cool, mm. was a big job, you know. Yeah. And um, you know, if you think '97, it was made in New Zealand, um, and even back then it was re- it's really hard now, like pretty much impossible, because mm. the technology doesn't exist in New Zealand. But back then. <laughs> and so, so yeah, it was manufactured in New Zealand factories. Yeah, well, well, and the first range part in our studio, you know, right? Like hand cutting fabric. Dan actually was—he's—he was he's, he was sewing up some of the styles, man. Damn. <laughs> Don't tell the shops that, but yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it was hands on, man. Like really, mm. really hands on. It was really technical, and there was a lot of administration, man. Like when you got ninety-two panels, and then you cut them, and then you put them in bundles, and then you drive them off to uh, like some sort of manufacturing um, maker in New Zealand that was crazy enough to try and sew waterproof breathable outerwear and didn't have the correct needles in their machines and stuff. Mm. Like getting those panels right and like the coding it and like coordinating everything. It was like, it was like a massive jigsaw puzzle, man. Like a four dimensional jigsaw. Like for for comparison, like how many panels would the, Grundo jacket that you've got on um uh, not 92 but I would say because you got lining right so you yeah. got lining and you know there's a there's a hood in here mm. hood's probably got four panels so to guess I'd say over 50 yeah right so I mean that that gives it some context though yeah so sick because I mean yeah I mean in manufacturing now it has to be offshore right yeah. Because, like, most of the factories I grew up working in in Dunedin are all yeah. storage units now and shit. Yeah, it's all gone. Uh, yeah. Like, it's um, and that's okay. I don't, I don't think we need to be a manufacturing nation. Yeah. Um, a lot of our stuff's made um, in the East and China. They're, they're mm. experts, man. Like, the thing is, because it's a growth industry, they've been investing in technology. Mm. So, I remember, I remember seriously taking bundles of cut work. Oh, no, sorry. A fabric off to our cutters so you have a like the old old way you'll get fabric deliver it to the cutters there'll be a guy that's a cutter he's got these big tables you lay out the fabric you put the patterns down mm. chalk them out and you have this like cutting tool and you have a durry hanging out his mouth he's like oh, what's going on you turn up and he's having a beer and you're just like holy shit you know like room for error yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you got like um and then you pick up all that cut work and take it to another factory. But now, like, lasers, you know? They've got mm. laser cutters, you know? And it's less less room for error. Um, although, you know, humans getting replaced in that process. But for quality um, aspects, like, 
you know, some of that technology is like no, amazing, yes. man. It's, a- it, it gives you the opportunity to really progress, you know. Mm. Um, and yeah, and because they're, you know, and that the the leaders, you know, like, you know, we've worked with Gore-Tex and you need a Gore-Tex license factory and, you know, mm. like to get into one of those factories, you got to be on your game, you know, like, yeah. Um, and they're in China, man, because they're, they're the leaders in outerwear. And they've just got the infrastructure there to do it, right? Yeah. And, I remember yeah. our first down jacket we made would have been maybe 99. We didn't, it wasn't an absolute first range, but we made a down jacket and, um, to get it made, we had to make it in the Ferry Down factory, which was in Christchurch. Oh, yeah. And um, to, I don't know if you know, a down jacket's, well, some down jackets are full with feather and down or duck mm. down. or um, um, you, uh, yeah, you, So you need a proper down filling room. If you see down as a fiber or fabric, oh, not fabric, um, its composition is so light and fluffy, you know? Like mm. if you ever bust out your down jacket, get a hole on it, it just goes everywhere. So... You know, the only place you could make a down jacket back then was in the Ferry Down factory. And then they shut down. So it was like, we want to keep making down jackets. So, you know, mm. what do you do? Yeah, yeah. You go where the technology is and where the best quality is. Mm. So, Which leads to China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. At the moment, those guys, you know, but mm. other countries will merge, you know. And it is it quite a um, expensive uh, process manufacturing snowboard out of wear. Yeah, 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 it totally is. Um, I, I remember the first ranges we made, you know, you have a margin, and our margin was like, it didn't really matter because we didn't care, but, mm. you know, you need a margin for sustainability as a business, you know, because yeah. your margin is your gross profit, which, you know, pays your rent and, you know, pays your staff. and yeah. So you need, a, you need a margin, but, yeah, I mean, it's technical stuff, and if, if you over-design, you can quickly just incur expense and go down the wrong path. So there's mm. a beautiful balance in getting it right. Sort you of know. functional but simple. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and that's um, it's easy to over-design, you know. Mm. Like, but you've got to be clever to, to not under-design, but to get that balance mm. right. It's like quite so tricky. That um, middle jacket that we were looking at before, it's over-designed. <laughs> Do you think so? <laughs> no, no, I, I not in a good thought, way. I would have thought that that would have been the perfect blend. Like, I, yeah, I, I wore that for six years traveling the world snowboarding. Yeah, yeah. And it it wasn't too heavy. Yeah, the true. layer up underneath. Had, I mean, at the time, powder skirt, which rocked my world. I couldn't, you know. Yeah. I think it was, the, like, it was technical, mm. especially when you look at all the minor details with the zips mm-hmm. and all that stuff. But at the same time, I didn't think that was massively over... Like, I, I still felt like... It was a jacket I could still wear out on the streets and not feel like... Didn't... Yeah. Belong, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I thought that was a really good... Yeah, blend, yeah, you know? Yeah, and that, and that point, for sure. Um, and I think that was... a re- We really had that balance of, like, snowboard outerwear that could be streetwear. Mm. Um... And that's what, I suppose, busted us into a wider market because people, you know, that, that, that jacket you bought and used for seven seasons or whatever and you snowboarded in powder and all the stuff and it probably performed relatively good for you. You know, oh, the, the aesthetic yeah. of it and the design aesthetic was, um, you know, um, attractive to someone that didn't snowboard. They just yeah. wanted a cool jacket. Yeah. And they started buying it. But then also, at that time... I didn't have a lot of money. It's like, cool, I can also wear this jacket in town. Versatile. 
I don't have to have a second jack. You know, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can't. You know, and I think it was that was a cool thing. Whereas I remember there was a few of my homies that had some very expensive and massively over-engineered things that were amazing for snowboarding, but then they wouldn't be seen dead in town. And yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, you know. No, good and, point. Yeah, yeah. That's that. I think that's one thing we did really well. But which actually probably what that did though is it opened us up to a bigger market and people outside of our, our culture of like core skate and snow mm. wanted a piece of us yeah so and that, that's, the, that's the next chapter really I suppose you know in Huffa to some degree I mean well I did want to sort of talk about that a little was that Huffa Huffa seemed to I mean the, the Huffa that I knew yeah. was and I talked about it before was that first t-shirt Huffer Direct that I've seen Phil Frost who was our hero in Dunedin yeah, skateboarding yeah, yeah. around the park and when, and there's just this raw skate snow thing and then suddenly boom out of nowhere it became this hugely iconic New Zealand streetwear brand yeah and I was sort of hoping we could sort of tap on like what what happened to make that happen yeah yeah or, yeah yeah okay cool yeah I suppose through that, um, through the initial uh, few seasons and years, couple of years, um, and being being immersed in that skate snow culture, um, you know, like we, you know, we had a skate team, we had a snow team, we had the best skateboarders and snowboarders on our team, and it was mm-hmm. like we're living and breathing it. It was um, super exciting, but I suppose that we're always quite open mm-hmm. and always keen to be challenged. Yeah, um, and then. Through that period, through that, we've always proudly been New Zealand, you know, like mm. we, um, you know, that, that t-shirt you're talking about, um, the Huffer Direct one, that's probably really early days, I'd say 98, could have been, mm. 99, yeah. um, but yeah. it said Huffer Direct on it, Yeah. but it had a very small New Zealand map in between the Huffer and Direct, Yeah. I believe if that's yep. the t-shirt you're talking about. So we, we, we embraced New Zealand in a time when... Um, we are in the living and breathing and influenced by, you know, mm. American dominated sport at the time. Yeah. You know, and, uh, that, that's, yeah, it was pretty proud that we did, mm. you know, we put New Zealand on a t-shirt as a map. <laughs> Cause that's something I didn't even think about is like, yeah, like snowboarding, skateboarding, we are looking at the American pros yeah. for inspiration. Oh yeah, the totally part. inspiration. And That's where it all started, you know. Yeah, and from my perspective, you know. Mm. Um, but we had enough confidence in who we are to not try and copy. Yeah, like Dan was amazing, man. Like we, I remember Burton had a catalog that was like perfect bound book catalog mm. back in '97, '98 when we started. And it, you just look at it and go, man, well, I want to give up. These guys are the masters back then. You know, there's a mm. book of everything looked amazing and perfect. Like, and how can you compete? Yeah, you know, how the hell can we compete? Just, but, you know, one thing I learned from Dan, he was like, would you have a quick look at it? He was like, get it out of here, man. Throw it in the bin. Get get that thing out of here, man. And it was like, if it's around, it will influence us and we end up copying it, you know? Mm. I was like, man, that's so genius. So, you know, like, have a look, throw it away. Yeah. But if, you, if we had it in an office and we kept all those things would look at them and then that would influence us and then we'll copy and then suddenly it's not so you see it yeah, yeah. get rid of it 
Right. But be influenced and dig deeper, man, into who you really are. And that's where New Zealand came from, you know? Like, mm. if we're mimicking American culture, we would have just, you know, tried to be an American skate brand. Mm. But we're not. We're, you got to be yourself, you know? Mm. So without having been overly influenced, you could tap into what was us. So having New Zealand, and we're competing with American skate brands, mm. uh, having New Zealand prominent on our products, and they're what turned into... A massively iconic t-shirt which mm. sounds dumb at the time now because it got so played out but a new zealand t-shirt a new zealand map t-shirt <laughs> made up of dots with oh yeah you know what we call the digi map yeah. our logo is where talpo was like that's right like, that's right that's the digi map yeah, yeah 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 we did that when we were a skate brand you know mm. this is before before we sort of you know grew into a wider market you know like mm. you know that's uh, that's awesome i, th- I mm. think that's so cool yeah and then um but because i suppose you know we had that confidence and leadership people wanted to be part of it you know like outside mm. of skateboarding mm. um yeah so so there was a yeah it was a, a time when um uh I th- there was a, it's a bit of a milestone i suppose but i think it was like 2001 era 51 um which is still standing today which is like a you know um a great um, what we call it contemporary streetwear mm. up, like upmarket higher price points you know nice imported streetwear mm. international stuff they started and they're like ah oh, so what's this cool brand Huffer we, we're starting a new store a new concept and we want to talk to you guys and we want you to stock it and then so I was doing sales at the time I was like okay guys what's going on and then got to understanding what their vision was for the store. And then I knew at the time, if we to do it, you know, there's the worry of like, what is the original community that supported us? What are they mm. going to think of this? You know, it's, are we turning our back on them? Because like skateboarding and snowboarding to a degree, we're pretty protective of our culture. Yeah. And, and the brands that mean things to us as well. Massively. That sort of stuff. Like so more you, than anything. So was that, a, that was, I'm assuming, a bit of a concern to you guys? Yeah thinking about this thing like oh, are yep. we going to bum these dudes out or? yeah but but at yeah. the same time so we, we we went forward and stocked the store area 51 but the decision was made with integrity to mm. the core of what we are mm. um and and what we aspired to be not to be in that market but you know that gave us the opportunity to further our products you know mm. like innovation and, and progression was a massive mm. part of what we you know, we were looking at that jacket before, you know, it's like beautifully simple, but, you know, highly technical to some mm. degree, but enough tech, you know, like that was what was fueling us as well. So we're like, well, we're sort of, the skateboard market was very sort of bound by price points, you know, like mm. hoodies were 99 bucks, you know, baggy and was, jeans. And, and was, that's what, you know, that's, and that was it. Right? That was all you wore back yeah. then, you know? Like, yeah. So we're like, man, we want to keep designing. We want to keep going. Um, so, you know, having the store gave us, not that we we're turning our back on it, but we could expand, not business, but extend, expand our, our um, you know, our knowledge and progress ourselves and Just the hunger to not, progress. Not be limited with hoodies and baggy jeans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. man. Like, and have this new room to play in where we could push ourselves and, and push the products, you know? Mm. So, and I knew that making that decision... If we stay true to us, it wouldn't matter. Yeah. Um, but sure, I know. I know for a fact. A lot of people were like, turn the back on us and like, what are you doing, man? It was like, you know, in life, some decisions you lose either way. 
Yeah. Because if we stayed there, I don't reckon we'll be here today. Yeah. We'd have got washed out, you know, like yeah. maybe. Or, you know, so it's like a, there's, there's lose-lose situation. Mm. Well, you, you think of there's some of the contemporary New Zealand skate brands at that time. Mm. They're not really around now. Yeah, yeah, no and that's, one. you know, it doesn't necessarily, I wouldn't blame it on... Um, <laughs> I mean, for, for whatever reason, but... On just you know. being stuck in skateboarding. But yeah, I mean, you got, I, I think it's good to continue to move and progress and challenge yourself, otherwise you become stagnant. Mm. And not that skateboarding was stagnant, but it was just... It was just our genuine hunger. So so I think the decision was made out of integrity. Um, so I was cool with that so I could move forward. And we we weren't turning our back on the We still supported the skate community. Mm. But we just, we wanted to keep growing, mm. you know? So you had like, well, you mentioned sort of, sort of supporting the skate community. I just remember that original Huffer skate team being so fucking badass. Oh, man. Can we talk about those dudes for a bit? Yeah, like, dude, jeez. Because who was it? Was Andrew Hayata? Dude, he just called me yesterday. Really? Oh my god! That he, dude. Wow, was that dude, man. He, he no. seriously called me on Facebook yesterday. Facebook Messenger. I was like, "What, Muddy? You calling me? What's up?" <laughs> you wanted to get like a, um, I don't know, man, like a sweatshirt for his missus or something. <laughs> I was like, "That's so, so cool, man." I was like, "Wow." I oh, mean, that dude would be a podcaster himself, wouldn't he? Oh my god, like, man! Holy shit, dude. Yeah, yeah. I've seen. I see him like. Once a year, every now and then, he turns up. Gnarly skateboarder. So like, gnarly. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, he was one of those, like, I've never met him, but yeah. he was one of those enigmas that I heard about, and then the stories, but then it's like, fuck, I'm, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, I mean... I, I, was, the, I was the bus driver on, a, on our skate tour. In 1999, we did a the New Zealand skate tour of the world or something. And, um, yeah, man, that was interesting, man. Yeah. It was like, like a supercharged <laughs> camper van full of like the best skateboarders in New Zealand man mm. including him and they're all characters man because mm. how's that um, moment and I think we talked about it in P-Dig's episode the nationals where he he dislocates his wrist Benny Huntering over a car oh, yeah. and then walks back up the ramp and switch 360 flips into the oh, bank oh or some God, shit yeah, yeah. with a dislocated wrist oh but, man. man that shit's fucking holy shit yeah um, yeah and what I mean the best in, like Shayataria oh man like any Dude. questions about that guy holy Dude. shit yeah that was uh, yeah man like um, was he uh, like before he came to Huffer like was it Strobe like yeah 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 yeah, yeah and then um, yeah just being in the presence in the room in the room with him I was like nervous you know yeah 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 and then you know he ended up you know, he ended up. There's a bit of a story to it, but he ended up coming into the business and oh, was like um, ABC. ABC, yeah, right. So I mean, yeah. he'd be better to tell the story, but mm. you know, he was started ABC in his in a, in a shed sort of thing, and you know, him being home, it was awesome. And um, and I, I believe he may have ended up being the sales rep for Lakai and DVS and mm. uh, Rob. Um, what's the same? Rob, Rob. Wellington Rob, S and S distribution, mm. um, and then um, and then sort of I think ABC was still there, but we're like we needed a sales rep. Mm. We're like, well, if you're repping for them, why don't you rep for us, and then continue to do ABC, and then um, we'll sponsor you as well. And then I, I can't remember the order. I think we already sponsored them. It was like, well, why don't you just rep for us instead of those guys, and then. We, mer- we brought ABC into Huffer. 
sick. Yeah. To some degree. <laughs> Rad. Yeah. You had a few of his ABC boards back in the day. The yeah, yeah. Original yellow with uh, Aotearoa Board Company on the oh, bottom. Nice, yeah, cool. So, and Chris Wood. Chris Wood, man. I've been I've been talking to him too. I gave him one of these jackets. Sick. And um, just recently, man. Out, still of, out of respect. Like his, his yeah. Instagram, he's tearing the fucking <laughs> vert ramp apart. Yeah, yeah. He's a uh, man. Far out. Yeah, he's... Wow, man! Like just yeah, seeing him skate, man, and in person and being around him and skating with him, man, jeez, mm. what just absolute talent, man. Mm. And Chris Wood is watching. Bernie Fu. Yep. Oh, Bernie, was he on Huffer as well? Yeah, dude. Fuck no way. Um, Bernie, I yeah, I just sent him a package out too. Fuck, a twenty-five year package. Amazing too. Probably still is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like all of these toots, you know. Oh no, no way, man. And even Dan, Dan Buckley himself, you know, like when we started Huffer in 97, he won the Nationals. Like, yeah, man, watching him escape a mini ramp, man. And, yeah. oh, man, it's just the mad master, eh? Taught me how to do Ollie Blunt on the Greyland ramp. And that's when I knew. I was like, dude. I was, like, trying it. He was like, dude, just use the force, bro. And I was like, <laughs> I, I landed one. I was like, wow. Just one of those dudes that's just tapped into that shit, eh? You're so yes. fluid and natural, eh? It's crazy. Mm. Oh, sick. And while we're on the subject of teams, there's Puffer's um, oh, um, function. Not, yeah, yeah. Outerwear wow. team was pretty badass. We go yeah. through the names on that one. Wow, man. Like, where do we start? Like, I guess maybe we start with Steve Ferguson. Uh, well, there's this guy, Jake right. Walls, actually. It was our first team runner. Jake Walls. Yeah, he lived oh, down right. here back a long time ago. Like, All right. In 97. Um yeah, yeah, I don't know, you might not know him, but yeah, and then, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, look at, you've wrote some, written some notes down here, yeah, but yeah. like, wow, Haley Holt, you know, wow. Yeah. Sick, eh? Hayley, yeah. Fuck, I mean, especially back in that time, it's like, she was really fucking, there wasn't a lot of people keeping up with, Dude. with her. So gnarly, man. Mm. Yeah, like enough to spend a bit of time with her, but she's one tough ass. Girl, man. I mean, I guess if you grew up riding with Logan Holt, yeah, dude, that's going to toughen you up pretty fucking quick. <laughs> yeah. Eh? yeah, and then um, mm. you know, yeah, R and B, um, Steve Fergs. Wow, man, Steve Fergs. Jeez, I was lucky enough. Like, yeah, his relationship with the brand was pretty close for a moment there, and I spent quite a bit of time with him mm. and traveling a bit with him. And because um, he sort of be the guy that sort of helped Huffer out, or we sort of propel it. Like, awareness to to us. I mean, uh, I don't know. I guess for me as an outsider yeah. looking in, he was the Huffer, the Huffer dude. Yeah, he was, yeah. A, he was a newer generation, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's actually looking looking back, it's like just trying to think of the order of how and when we sponsored who. It's so long ago, you know, like R&B, you know? Yeah. Dude. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm, yeah, like, I reached out to him the other day and... Um, He's coming. He's coming back from overseas, and he's going to stop in through Auckland. I'd be. I can't wait to see him, man. Mm. Like, oh, his interview on here was a crack up. I haven't listened to that one. Oh, it's fun. Oh man, I can't wait. He's a funny dude, man. Jeez. Mm. uh, Ferrati, man. Ben Ferret. Yeah. Plague. Yeah. Jeez. And um, Rob Mitchell. Tim Watson. Tim Watson, yeah, man, smooth operator, eh? Well, it seemingly came out of nowhere. I know, where did he, I don't even know where he came from, eh? Like, well, he, did, he just started skating. He, like, he um, he was so good at snowboarding, and he just sort of, my take of it, and I might be wrong, but he just started, like, just wanted to skate more. Mm. Was, um, I mean, I forgot how, how 
good he was. Like Tim Pierce just sent me through a whole oh, folder so, of pictures, and there's yeah. like five of Tim Watts. It's like holy shit, that like it all stacks up now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get him yeah. on. Wow, you all these people could get on this podcast, eh? Yeah, yeah. And like, <laughs> who else was on there though? Like Christian Phillip. Christian Phillip. Oh. Wow, man, the, the man that could do everything, eh? Like skate, snow, and surf. Yeah, yeah. He was like the new generation Matt Groom. Oh, yeah, shit. <laughs> That's a name I haven't heard in a while, eh? Matt Groom. Wow. Wow. And holy shit. Um, yeah, so yeah. I guess we got to talk about Dylan Butt. And Dylan Butt, yeah. Like, it was... Um, obviously, Dylan was like a super pro for Burton and Volcom. And somehow, man, like... Um, somehow we got this deal where we got him on Huffer Soft Goods. All <laughs> oh, right. So we could sneak around his sponsorship with Burton and Volcom at the time and somehow got him into Huffer non-outerwear, like so he could oh, wear Huffer right. clothing, um, which was cool because like it just seemed like the f- final piece of the puzzle as far as that team goes, you know? Like, mm. um, But yeah, it's always like Dylan, man, like so lucky to spend time. He's actually worked in our business for many years. Um, he helped actually ended up helping us design our outerwear for a while there mm. and actually on it just recently we've worked with him on this uh 25 year co- collection that we put out so but um yeah meeting dylan for the first time i think man i was like blown away eh? like he was young younger than me and i was like uh, managed to somehow meet him at katrona i think we we're out at captains and there was like this little um I don't know, there's a little line off a rock there maybe a 10 15 foot rock and we're just like blasting around. I hadn't even been to Cadrona much, and he's like, bust out and just pops the most meanest switch method. I was like, oh, this guy, man, what the yeah. hell? Like, no one was even doing switch methods back then. And he was just like, Fuck. off like a natural yeah. terrain, like chopped up powder, kicker, like floated down. I was just like, dude, man, who's this guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, like, so good, man. That's how I met him. And then, you know, to then to understand how actually good he was. And then watching his career, and then for him to be on Huffer, I was like, man, that was so exciting. It was like a shame moment, you know? Yeah. It was seriously the Don, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the best, fucking, I mean, they were, he was the best for a long time. I mean, he's still, still amazing. Still is, <laughs> Well, it's still amazing to watch on the snowboard. Now. Oh, yeah. Like, and just in life, man. He's yeah. like a legend, eh? It's so cool. Oh, such an awesome dude. So he was designing quite a bit of Yattery for a while. Yeah, so. yeah. So he ended up working for us full time. Um, oh, sweet. Yeah, yeah, and he's in the office, and we loved having him about, man. Like, Dill's, you know, yeah. It was cool just having, I suppose, you know, getting so busy with with Huffer, um, mm. myself, and having someone in the field who knew so much about outerwear as we transitioned into trying to run a business. Yeah. You know, Dill was the, the guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Was, you know, his yeah. attention to detail, he loves design too, like Dill's. It was awesome, man. But, yeah, and then it's obviously going to come with a whole lot of functionality too, with his really mm-hmm. nose. And but having that team, you know, that's like, it's funny, eh? like, who has a team these days? Yeah, Where would a New Zealand yeah. snow team be? And who would it be? I don't know. I mean, well, like, who's, who's manufacturing? Well, no, like, even like, like, a, like, like, like who, who's doing brands that would have teams now? Yeah, I mean, what's the burden team? I don't. I wouldn't even know. Carlos and Zoe, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But then I'm not even sure if that's international or New Zealand. It's quite. It's a shame, yeah. eh? Because like yeah. having the team is like, um, you know, I hear you. Know, I especially remember listening to Jay's and Guy's podcast, but just talking about, 
you know high ground and burden New Zealand and then mm. you know and also burden US but you know how how the important role it played in bringing people mm. together and bringing the community together man like yeah it was like it's so cool to hear about that and you know we did it in our own way very different to high ground we weren't as big as that beast um, but, but we brought our team together and that's where I don't know if anybody remembers we did the half a house of horrors you know mm, so I want to ask you what that was but I mean that fits in perfect you get your team yeah of riders and mm. can we talk well, thinking, about that yeah, it was like we have this team. What's a what's a great way to amplify them? You know, I suppose as a if you're pursuing a, a career in snowboarding, profile helps. Mm. <laughs> you know, you need to profile yourself, and it's like how can we build a platform to showcase the talent in the team uh, outside of magazines? Which take you shoot a photo, you miss the cutoff of New Zealand snowboarder before the season started, so it's got next year's magazine. You know, remember that it was mm. like three issues, and then I think. The opportunity was like, I don't know, you should ask Phil, but like it was something like July first, and mm. you get you get an um, issue, the third issue, mm. and that was the cutoff, so you had to get everything done. The thing I was like, well, how how do we do it? And there was this thing that came out called the internet, and um, we're like, and YouTube was really new on the scene, you know, mm. like, and we're like, hang on, man, what what we could do, and actually we worked with Telecom became our sponsor, and they go, oh, we'll give you this technology where you can. Like upload it to the internet and put it on this thing called YouTube, and like so we came down and like the idea was to do the half a house of horrors. So we get a house, put our team in a house, which was great. So we could talk to our team, hang out, and we could talk about outerwear and what we need and get all that feedback to help design next year's outerwear. But also get the team to hang out and have fun. But then we go. The goal was over a week to make three episodes, like a web webisodes. You know, this is uh, probably. I think maybe oh five oh six oh seven. We did about three in a row, three years in a row, and it was, <laughs> and I, I really had these big expectations of coming down and like getting a house and just bringing out these like the highest quality quality snowboard movies ever. But mm. the pressure was like you didn't know what the weather was going to be. You had to get the footage, you know. At that time, filming was all around waiting for the snow again the perfect time we're like nah man we're gonna get an episode out what are we gonna do so we had to get creative mm. and just get content and make these mini episodes like two minute long episodes when editing in the day was so slow you know it was like mm. mammoth amount of work man and we made these web webisodes that probably no one watched but it was <laughs> I, I remember watching them there's still some yeah. online eh? like the one I remember the most was when Andy Kennelly overshot that whole remark step up Oh, that, yeah, that's how was that to watch? Wow, man, that was like yeah. I think he snapped his board mm. and his back, mm. but yeah, that was um, that was uh, some cool stuff, man. Yeah, but yeah, it was uh, I, I feel for the team runners, so like, oh, what, Steve, we're gonna get up again this morning and go out and film. <laughs> I was like, yeah. come on, man, we gotta go, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that, that, what a cool thing to do. Like, um, I want maybe we can do it again, mm mm get old steve mcgee's up there count <laughs> yeah. <them> out. <laughs> we're not allowed to call him by his name on here at steve mcgee's that's a sort of a uh a running joke with the cadrona park crew oh nice yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. maddie slocum will tell you sometime <laughs> yeah man <laughs> he tells it better i wasn't there i've just oh, latched onto it sorry steve mcgee's <laughs> um we also sort of huffer became this hugely iconic yep. streetwear brand it was kind of cool. I mean, we're like overseas, and also see like the three dots. Yeah, 
be like, oh, sick, you know, yeah, yeah. A, a, another Kiwi, no yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then there was a point where Huffa transitioned into what look from the outside looking in, like this high-end fashion brand. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. That was in like Fashion Week and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, how did that all come about from this rugged skate snow brand that became popular amongst us? Yeah. To this Fashion Week sort of. Yeah, it's funny. Like it seems like a natural progression from the inside, but from the outside, yeah, like you know, I don't, I wouldn't have a clue. But like listening, mm. listening to you talk about it, it's like interesting mm. because, like, to me, we weren't a high-end fashion brand, but because mm. we lived in Auckland um, and we did transition into street, and you know, like mm. what you just said before. I mean, you, I don't know if I've worded that right. I just no, it was called cool, Fashion Week, or you know, yeah, like, yeah. Well, we did, we did do Fashion Week, right? Mm. So I think it was two thousand and five or six. One of those years, we got approached. You know, we'd grown. You know, you said just before you'd see someone overseas with a three dot t shirt, and you said New Zealand. But mm. earlier, you used to say that's skateboarding or something. Yeah, yeah. So it would progress to the three balls was bigger than that now. You know, like mm. we'd we'd gone through that transition into furthering ourselves, designing and creating products. Um, beyond baggy jeans and hooded sweatshirts. Um, and then, you know, the popularity, the Area 51 store, going through that um, that time, they had Adidas Originals, mm. which was um, a sub-tiered brand of Adidas, I suppose, at the time. We're like, they're number two brand, we're number one. We were beating brands like that in, the, in their stores. And they, they had three stores by then. We're doing, like, ridiculous amount of business with those guys. And, and then, I suppose... The whole New Zealand aspect, it was celebrated at some point, you know, like the fact mm. that we embraced New Zealand, um, you know, it was it was celebrated by some of the nation, you know, mm. people like, you know. So I kind of thought it was cool, like, you embraced New Zealand and the Kiwiana thing, but it wasn't this tacky, corny Kiwiana no, that... No. It, well, because it know, became that after that. It hadn't mm. been done, man, to be honest. I'm not trying to claim it, but it was really... I, I don't know, New Zealand might have been suppressed or something at the time, but it would like seem really quite weird to have something in New Zealand on a T-shirt or a sweatshirt. Mm. And it, it seemed really fresh. Well, it, it felt new. Like the only other people doing that would have been the like tourist shops or something. I don't even you think know. they were, man, to be honest. Yeah, well, maybe not. Yeah. But then, then everybody did it because the popularity of... We had to limit it. We're like, man, this is too much demand. So we're like really trying to pull back on... On, on that you know like we stumbled across it mm. we've just been ourselves or New Zealand's cool we believe in ourselves yeah sure we're influenced by skate culture but we're also ourselves and we're mm. proud of that and then it went mental other people celebrated go I, I identify too man yeah and it just went crazy but then you know it got to the worst man like Barker's did it um, Hallenstein's did it Billabong did it Quicksilver did it Australian oh, surf brands put new NZ Quicksilver NZ on a t-shirt because it sold. Right. Because just we did it first in our, yeah. in our industry, you know. That was I was <laughs> just like, holy shit! And that's what made it tacky and cheesy. Mm. After that, but at the time, it really was. I mean, I mean that's my opinion. Some people may, may think different, but yeah, it was like. Well, I think anyway, going back to like that Huffer Direct, it seemed really fresh. Like, whoa, that's yeah, un- exactly. Rad, you know. Mm. 
Um, yeah, but then so moving on, so I suppose would become a known New Zealand brand, loved by some. Um, there was also this thing in the middle, of this Orlando Bloom moment, I suppose. Which, Is that the Iron Three Dots in the Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. When he wore the t-shirt and um, it made you know front page news. So when Hollywood superstar wears it, and he's pointing at it because he said, "I love New Zealand." So when you seen that, were you like, "Yes," or were you like, "Oh fuck"? No, I was, I was, I was like, "Fuck." Oh really? <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah. what this is. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of always end up talking about it, but it is a true milestone, and it's not something I want to claim or anything. But so Orlando wears the t-shirt, um, and then you know you got to think all the channels, the communication narrowed down. Mm. There's the newspaper, the radio, and TV, and there's 200,000 people on the streets of Wellington. Mm. The red carpet's out. It's like the biggest event Wellington's ever had, you know, mm. ever, and probably ever will have, you know. And he's walking down the catwalk. He's the star, and he's wearing our T-shirt, and it says, I love New Zealand, but, you know, replace the heart with our logo. Mm. And he points at it, and the mm. crowd get a reaction. He gets a reaction for the crowd, mm. sorry, because they go, oh, my God, Lando loves New Zealand. So the crowd go mental so he keeps doing it so every photo is him just going like this mm. and it ends up on the front page of the Herald and was he a fan of Huffer or was it a thing he seen like oh, I love New Zealand that was the like, cool t-shirt to have at the yeah. moment that was the hot t-shirt that was we before that happened when I was like oh my god this is going so crazy the fax machine was orders were coming in Cheapskates Wellington and all that trying to order like you know a hundred at a time every three days or something like no man we can't order that much so chill out Mm. so it was that was the t-shirt everybody wanted before Mm. that happened yeah and i think the story goes that the wardrobe lady when they wrapped lord of the rings the wardrobe lady bought the t-shirt for orlando for a gift because he was leaving and you know she dressed him every day so they became friends and Mm. it's like i'll get orlando as as a coolest t-shirt on the street yeah at the time and and something it was New Zealand, right? So mm. he, then he wore it. Which, I mean, that makes sense because I remember when I left to go overseas for a couple of years, like my mum bought me a, a Huffer t shirt mm. that was like, oh, here's a souvenir. Well, not a souvenir, but here's something to remember, so on and so forth. And yeah, yeah. So it makes sense. Like if she's, oh, Huffer's a rad New Zealand brand, oh, he'll, yeah. he'll love this. He's new, yeah, yeah. Something to remember New Zealand by. Yeah, and yeah. it's just turned into this tornado. Yeah, I mean, some PR companies would pay dollars for that. Yeah. Especially back in the day. And then, but that happened, and then, um, so it ended up in the front page of the, you know, in the news or whatever, and and then the media, then the media come to me, I think Dan's in China, like, up seeing one of our factories or something, and I was at work, and I didn't even really know what happened, I didn't even know who Orlando was, and then they go, the media call and go, holy shit, what are you going to do? And I was like, oh um we're not gonna make that t-shirt man (laughs) i was like it smells like so much trouble and then the fact that we didn't make the t-shirt we cancelled the t-shirt because of that event that made the front page of the next day's news and i was on the front page of the herald so how did that go down then does that one of those things where people like you fucking crazy you're missing the boat to yeah it became the conversation for the day you know how mm. i hope you don't consume too much media but media can just you know just spiral out of control and be this big conversation for the moment you know mm. and it just happened to be that was the fact there was like commentators going what's this what are they crazy what are they not doing this and then you know like student radio stations i remember hearing it on the radio 
it was like uh, Paul Holmes at the time going, you know, it was just discussion, man. I was just mm. talking about this thing. I was like, dude, this is our T-shirt. Mm. You know, like, what is this? This is like a missed opportunity for New Zealand and then student radio stations are like yeah fucking this is awesome man they're not selling out so suddenly you find you had a burden on your shoulders that you didn't ask for no no I I, it was like again we already knew I I was almost at the point of cancelling that t-shirt anyway because there was too much demand Mm. we're trying to carefully you know we're already grown from skateboarding and like we're it was just too much attention we're like whoa whoa chill everybody chill we're all good Mm. limiting supply and then it's like no, we're not going to make that. We're not going to make that. We're not going to make that. Lando, where's that? No, we're definitely not going to make that, you know? Mm. So I didn't even have to think. And then it was celebrated, man. To, at the end of the day, the people that respected our brand went, good on you, you know? Mm. And mm. then uh, from there, three years on, our brand just psh, exploded. Mm. So in hindsight, you still believe you made the right decision? With yeah, that 100%, man. So. But the, the great thing, because well, it's a milestone, but what it did... It was a great opportunity for us to speak to the nation mm. when you could, because now you know media is so mixed and so hard to get a message across on so many platforms. And but it was so narrowed down, and we could show the nation, you know, our values and mm. how we run our business. So, so people yeah. got a sense of like, you know, not maybe not everybody liked that decision, but they're like, oh wow, cool, you didn't sell out. Guys are standing. The whole country guns. knew it, yeah. and everybody's like, good on them. And then. You know, we became a we became a known, not to all, but love New Zealand brand. Mm. So the, I'm trying to get to the Fashion Week story, man. Yeah. But just to give it background, you know, from skateboarding through growing beyond skateboarding into um, furthering ourselves, mm. and then becoming this groundswell of um, interest, um, and then to the point where limiting, limiting how much product we're making. Um, and trying to keep the integrity of who we are and what we're trying to achieve to then fashion week and saying from the outside you know like oh it's you become this you know fashion brand mm. but n- not really we, we're still being ourselves but fashion week asked us to be part of it mm. and we're like they approached us and we're like we didn't really understand the concept and got to understand it for it like, oh this sounds kind of cool mm. and then so we we go this is an opportunity to have a party right yeah so we didn't i don't think we necessarily changed what we're doing but we we saw this platform as an opportunity to use it to connect people Mm. and then communicate our brand yeah so the first time we did fashion week you know it's catwalks right so you show off your clothes i mean it was still streetwear Mm. and um we did it in our office and we rolled out our cutting tables and our models walked down it and we had a band playing up in the, the windows on scaffolding, the electric confectioners that they, they played there. And then we had this massive after party and it was just, it didn't seem like um, we transitioned in fashion. We just like used Fashion Week's platform to communicate to people mm. and bring people together. That's oh, right. Yeah, and um, and then we did it. We did it a few years in a row, man. Hmm. And we just got we, it was exciting, man. It was co- it was just a cool way to um, express who we were. Yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe cool. maybe maybe it was the wrong thing to do. I don't know, but it, it was oh. kind of exciting, man. It was just a challenge and like a new skill to learn to use a platform to it's kind of like your transition to the Area Fifty One stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. Extension of that. Yeah, sort of. It was an exciting right. new project. 
Oh, cool. Yeah, it was just kept us motivated. Interesting to see that evolution. Because I, I just remember seeing that at the same time and you, seeing that sort of fashion week go down at the same time you got this raw dog out of wear yeah, team and it's like, well, that's a, wow, cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah, I'll be, I'll, some people probably thought it was pretty uncool, but um, mm. it didn't really matter, man, because, like, if we were... Um, I mean, we... We're commercial, also, like we yeah. need to keep our business in business, but yeah. you know we're going to do things that excite us. But also, they approached you; you didn't approach them. Yeah, yeah. So totally. I mean, that's that's pretty cool too. Yeah, totally, man. Um, so Gina, our IT genius behind the scenes here, yeah, um, would like to know your thoughts on fast fashion and where fashion is heading. Oh yeah, good question. Fast fashion. Um, so when I see fast fashion, I, I take it um, affordable, quick turnaround fashion. That um, that's my take on like uh, mass produced, high mm. volume. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not 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 the biggest fan of fast fashion. Mm. Um, environmentally. It, it's it's um it, it can it, not all fast fashion like um i'm not educated enough and don't follow too much fast fashion but i'm sure some of it it's a you know it's a wide category right but mm. um there, there's some you know some practices out there which would be worse than others that really are just very fast and they you know it's one wear one wear product mm. and they make it at a price point where Hey, I'm going out. I need a shirt. I'll just buy it and then throw it away. You know. Yeah. That's horrific. So that's this ultimate disposable culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just quick hit, man. Poor quality. Get a look for a moment. Buff it out. I mean, that's beyond. It's, that's not what I want to do, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, no way. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be quite a negative term, fast fashion. Mm. Um, but yeah. I, I think where where it's heading I think it was and I hope man it was a trend that's passed um, not saying it doesn't exist but I think you know the generation that's going to become the demand will mm. demand for something more than fast fashion yeah, I think it's like you so know there's a bit more consciousness consciousness and a lot of um, things with the sustainability and yeah. eco consciousness now yeah, than then maybe there was a generation ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I really hope we'd hit the peak with that. You know, like mm. I think the way there's so much more information, but you know, like climate is an issue. You know, mm. uh, a massive issue, and to the point whereas the people of the future need a future, mm. and I think demand drives a business and as that generation mature and they've got the spend I really hope they're not going to want to uh, want to really um, support something that's yeah. super fast fashion you know yeah yeah I hope man I don't know mm. but and where do you draw the line I don't know I mean I, I guess it's one of those things where if you can afford to stand by the morals then awesome do so and, yeah you know like i mean i'm pretty touched to see that you got seven yeah. seasons out of our jacket from what how many years ago like um 2005 or six so i bought that in 04 
Oh, be fine. honest, I didn't have a choice though. Like, oh yeah. I mean, I, I was. <laughs> yeah. No, my, but if you had a cheaper jacket, you would. If you if you went to a fast fashion shop, you could buy a jacket for like thirty mm. bucks, and yeah. it'll last you like three runs, <laughs> <laughs> and you'd be yeah. freezing. <laughs> I, no, I mean, I just was like, fuck, I've I wasn't making a lot of money, and I was, you know, trying to put every dollar I had towards chasing snow and living on next to nothing yeah and like well this is the jacket i have and i just picked right because it lasted and that was when i was riding a lot like a lot of days a season yeah i I put that thing through its paces and yeah it it definitely it held up and yeah (laughs) you know like uh, we had a look at it before and the only thing that's really not there now is the zip and that's probably more on the membrane waterproof coating oh, yeah. on the back. It's <laughs> on the back, it's deteriorating, yeah. right? Because yeah, like, that's nearly it's twenty. Your twenty-year-old jacket, you know. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm mm. I'm glad you still have that jacket, you know. Mm. And you know, um, but yeah, I mean, how it's a sliding scale way fast fashion, but mm. yeah, I, I yeah, I hope it's not hitting in a a gross area. Yeah. But that, that's up to the consumer's choice, you know. Mm. At the end of the day, you fight for you. But that's the challenge, wallet, don't you? you you're also mm. challenged. Like, life's tough, man. And, mm. you know, you can be tempted to buy into fast fashion or fast clothing, you know, because you mm. just need... Clothing's a need. Mm. You know, you need to survive. and You, you know, like... Um, but then... Because I guess there's a place because not everyone has a whole lot of money and shit, you know? Yeah. So... I guess this is more about maintaining a balance between. But it's also education as well. Like mm. it's that classic, you know, buy for life, or you know, like mm. if you can, if you don't have a lot of money, work. You know, on the long run, it's going to be cheaper. Mm. Mm. So how can you make a plan to get the money to purchase mm. for a longer life period? It's kind of like my granddad with his power tools. Yeah, it's like you buy good tools at the start. And you don't have to buy them again. Yeah, it's cheaper in a long run, right? It's cheaper you have in a long experience. Yeah. So part of that's education. Mm. And, you know, like financial support with, you know, like, is finance taught at schools well enough? You know, like teaching people how to save. Mm. Do piggy banks still <laughs> exist? Yeah. You know, to save so you can buy quality that will last and actually end up saving money. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a, yeah. 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 Interesting. Mm. Mm. Um, I want to bring it back to the outerwear because yeah, sure. there was a point where Huffer stopped doing snowboard outerwear. Yeah. Was there a reason behind that? Yeah, I, I think um, many things. Um, I can't remember exactly what year it was, but um, what the it, it was getting challenging. Like you know, to make outerwear, you need a certain volume to work in the factories. Um, and it needs it needed to be supported from, you know, predominantly a New Zealand distribution. So, skate snow shops, um, there were more of them <laughs> mm. than there is today. So um, there was a period where a lot of them unfortunately died. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't really a home to get the volume to even justify production. This is part of the story, but um, so. Yeah, like it became challenging trying to trying to make it. Mm. You needed like 
talk factories into doing really small runs. And then, as, as we talked about, it's a lot of work to make out of where. So, um, it, you know, I think we, so there was a year where we stopped making a pant. Mm. That, that felt like we'd sort of stopped um, making snowboard out of where, right? Because mm. we kind of had, and we still had waterproof, breathable jackets, and we always have, but how snowboard orientated they were um, was different, right? So when we stopped making the snow pant, but yeah, that's the hardest bit, a snowboard pant. Like a waterproof jacket, like this jacket here, well, <laughs> you can't see it on a podcast, but this jacket here, you could, um, you can sell it in a store beyond a, a, a snowboard store, you know, mm. um, because someone might want to wear it and it's going to function and you can hike in it and, yeah. you know, but a snow pants different, you know, mm. so you need that snow store, you know, so I think with, um, yeah, a bit of a downturn in the industry there and, um, our distribution disappearing from us it just unfortunately didn't make sense Mm. um so that that was a big part of it um yeah Mm. yeah right i mean it's it's something i didn't even think of yeah 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 and then you know even i i sorry yeah and another thing on top of that i suppose at that same time um the availability of international brands um big international brands like I remember just seeing Burden products come in about that time going wow how can you make that it's so such good quality mm. and the, the retail price is so cheap you know they're making 10,000 of the same pant we're trying to make 70 yeah you know and it's just like dude you guys are owning it it's just like it was like man we just can't compete you know yeah we just don't yeah. have the volume we don't have we don't have the distribution and then international international brands, the big players were just crushing it, you know? Yeah. So it just felt like we'd come up against a wall for some reason. Mm. Um, and we, you know, at a time of survival in business, you know, sometimes you just got to um, do what's working, what the, what the market's telling you. Mm. So I'm not buying snowboard pants <laughs> and yeah. there's no stores to actually sell them. It's sort mm. of... <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, maybe that's changed, you know, like we, you know, as we're here standing today, we brought out a 25 year anniversary range referencing snowboard outerwear mm. and we now have a snowboard pan again. But my snapshot is there's a bit more opportunity in the market. There's a few more places you can potentially sell them. And maybe there's, I don't know, I mean, because we haven't made snowboard pants, I've been trying to buy a pair of snowboard pants for the past eight years or whatever seven mm. years and it's so impossible you know i have these ones on now wearing them <laughs> here in this yeah. podcast and they're like the best pants i've seen in eight years mm. i'm not just trying to talk about pants but to me you know like yeah yeah it's the perfect pants to you i couldn't mm. find these pants so we made them mm. again mm. so it's still almost a full circle with huffer yeah coming back to the outerwear thing and i suppose our business went through some maturity we had, we've had some highs and lows man like Mm. massive highs and lows in our business there any sort of highs and lows you'd be keen to talk about oh yeah totally (laughs) like the lows probably more so because like Mm. it's where you know that's that's where you can learn the most Mm. well okay yeah Yeah, because i mean from an outside looking in it's easy to look and be like oh look at them they've got it made and all that sort of stuff but you don't see the work that goes in yeah yeah the plate spinning oh man they're going on yes. so is there some lows that you'd be keen to share 
yeah and like the education that came from those lows yeah i suppose yeah going into the u.s was a high and a low at the same time you know yeah <laughs> like the fact that we even did it like um i suppose to try and fill in that story what we're talking about earlier they sort of that kiwiana success or that you know and then the orlando moment and then the nation celebrating the fact that we didn't sell out on that stuff and having this groundswell behind us and becoming a a known new zealand brand you know cemented and to some degree i'm sure there's heaps of people who hated us but were loved by some mm. um hated by many <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But, um and then we got to the point whereas we get into the end of the 2000 and or it must have been six seven we're like okay what's next and where, where are we going now and we sort of got to this point and then we um um there was a uh someone that was helping us with production and and, and garments that had sort of been working with us got really excited about our brand and said we should go to the u.s we just team up you know we're really good at making products they were like a production sourcing agent for us mm. and then we're like no you're the brand we we know making we've been working together like we're excited about your brand let's go to the u.s and we're like okay <laughs> and then yeah through 07 i suppose we did research went over to the market um got involved and we ended up going to um trade trade shows in las vegas and managed to successfully actually get to a point where we launched in the US. And we picked up like um, boutique stores in like LA and New York, like real cool stores, man. And we managed mm. to sell in our first range. But um, we're so underprepared, man. Holy shit. Like trying to run it remotely from New Zealand. Like, oh, and just how big the beast the States is. Oh or? my God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, d- we took the New Zealand... Um, you know how we t- everything we'd learned in New Zealand, we thought we could apply it to America. You know, like mm-hmm. you know, we really did. When we started Huffer, I was like suitcase back of the car, just enough gas money to get around the country, mm-hmm. like use our contacts, people that we knew, get in the stores and just collapse on the finish line and deliver the product. You know, and mm-hmm. and go from there. And you know, to some degree, <laughs> on a slightly more matured. Um, basis like we did the same in the u.s but um yeah yeah we sort of we delivered the product and sort of collapsed on doing so we you know we weren't ahead of that we what was our what was our plan after that was like make another range (laughs) and deliver it you know like yeah and then i was was going up there frequently and you know i was building some networks and but it was massive man like and would get these cool stores and then the gfc hit and like man it was it was rough man and we're like we're trying to market our brand you know from a couple of trips up there and staying here in new zealand and you gotta be you gotta be up there man and um the gfc hit and we had outstanding we delivered three or four seasons of product because especially like was this a time where the united states market was even aware of a new zealand brand or cared about a new zealand brand or, or well were you, were they cared flying? when we were there were you guys flying the New Zealand flag, or were you just like, no, we we just huffer? We just huffer, yeah. But mm. yeah, we were flying our New Zealand flag to some degree. Oh yeah. Not not that New Zealand was all over our products, but mm. it did smell different, you know. Yeah. Our tone of voice is different. Um, yeah, but we're just too fresh, man. We just came in too early, too underprepared, mm. and we could hustle, man. Like the one thing we knew is to get in front of people, 
tell a story um, and manage to win them over to some degree and get an order. Mm. And that was that. We can get orders in cool shops. And we know how to go and hang out with the cool guys at the cool shops and mm. get our products. And But we just couldn't back it up past that. Like, how did we... What happens when they had a warranty? Like, someone brings back a garment and it's faulty. We're like, oh, man. Um, yeah. <laughs> cool New Zealand. And we'll... We hadn't put those systems and processes in place. We sort of just just got there, you know. Mm. So we we just kept pursuing for a while, and then the GFC hit, and we, you know, even how we chased up bills, you know, outstanding bills. It was like, oh, we'll give them a call. Oh, wrong time zone. How we? What time is it in New York? Should we call those guys that owe us twelve grand? And like, yeah. it's the GFC, bro. That disappeared. And we're at the bottom of the pile, you know. Yeah. So like, it was like. Yeah, it was pretty cowboy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and yeah, the GFC was the icing on the cake. You know, like, we had shipped product and hadn't been paid for it, and basically everybody disappeared overnight. The GFC was a lot more um, pronounced, I suppose, than it was here. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, people really just disappeared, man. Yeah. And well, yeah, that's, that didn't seem to hit New Zealand as hard as the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, d- yeah. I suppose. It, I mean, not that I'm an expert on that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there probably be a few people that say something different. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, but anyway, you know, and then like, point being, man, it was not the story about the US. I mean, because that was a high, and to actually successfully even get product into the US and sell it in some of these stores was was cool. Mm. We didn't have enough of a plan to go beyond that. Yeah, that was um, what it was. But the low point was it almost collapsed our entire business. You know. Yeah. It was <laughs> dire. Yeah. It was gnarly. And it wasn't just losing outstanding, you know, um, you know, uh, bills from accounts in the US or whatever. It was more so, our focus was so damn wide. We, we weren't doing anything well. We're trying to do the US. Yes, we're doing some Fashion Week shows. Yes, we're still making outerwear. Yes, like yes, yes, yes. We're so mm. wide, and um, it was just sloppy, you know. Yeah. Like it, people still liked the brand, and there was demand and stuff, but we weren't executing. We we just didn't have the focus, you know. Mm. So yeah, the, everything came crashing down, and um, pretty much a bank were just like, man, we kind of like you guys, but this is not cool, man. Yeah. In a much more formal way, in a letter, yeah. <laughs> it was really serious. Um, and then um, that was a point, man. We had to make a lot of changes there, and that was mm. like around 2010. Yeah. And that was um, that was a rough time, man. Really, yeah. it was a horrific part of my life, man. Like there was a couple of years there. It was like <sighs> intense. Yeah. It was all on the line, man. Fuck. And see, that's. Well, it, it feels like, like that, but what's it? Well, you say it was all on the line, but then here's a bunch of people outside me like, oh, look at that. They're just you yeah, know, and all that, you know, like. You yeah. just never know what's going on. Yeah, if you're not in it. Yeah, you know. But yeah, everyone probably has an opinion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. And yeah, totally, man. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that was a really challenging point, man. Mm. Um, and it took a long time to recover from that too, man. Mm. Years and years. Yeah, right. You know, 2012, 13, 14, 15. We opened our own retail, and like we had to massively change what we did. Mm. You know, like, and it feels like, yeah, 2010 pretty much hit the wall and the challenges that came it was a really hard two years there from 10 to 12 um you know there's some other brands today. you know you know the brand like i love ugly have you heard of that the what i love ugly it's oh, like a streetwear really? brand 
I remember those guys like um, V and Barnaby were starting a t-shirt brand at the time and someone I got to have a meeting with them they go, oh we want to talk to these guys they're starting out and I was like yeah I'll talk to them man it's all good and I was like caught up with them and they said oh I've got these t-shirts and <laughs> and then um and then I sort of didn't think much of it and then I was just caught up in my mess of what was going on stressed out and then turn your head two three four years later they're crushing it man like those guys nailed um what they do and there'll be some people out there who know know that brand but you know their digital program in the early part of like when facebook exploded tumblr um e-commerce man they were just like i was just like wow these guys are so polished you know yeah they're like quarter of a million facebook followers like their online games like amazing like tumblr they're getting retumbled like you know i don't know if you know tumblr but i was just like everything they did was before anybody else did it mm. i was like damn they were innovating and we're like we're in the trenches then mm. like we've like had stock issues and on sale and i was like oh my god it was like that was hard man mm. like it was cool like good on those guys you know Mm. Um, but yeah, just seeing other people rise up when you're in the trenches, it was like, it was tough, man. Yeah. It was, a, it was so hard. Like happy for them, but at the same time, like, damn. You know, look at our website. You look at these guys, they got this amazing website, the e-commerce, it's so tidy and like, you can understand what they're saying and like, mm. we're just like, everybody, why, why didn't you get a better website? You're like, oh my God, bro. Like, dude, there's so much to do. We're like, yeah. you know. Right. Like everyone's got the solution when they're not in the shit, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah. yeah. So it was interesting, you know, through the two thousand from ten to twenty. Yeah, <laughs> was like an interesting period, and I, f- I felt like that was a big hill to climb, and um, just slowly, progressively, give fix things up, really, mm. um, and to the point we got to the end of well, two thousand nineteen, um, we managed to grow our business to save our business. Mm. Um, uh, and then I, I realized that we sort of created um, extra layers in that growth. You know, the growth was to help us sustainability to get us as far away from that 2012 line of messiness. Mm. And I was like, man, now we've got this extra complexity in our business. So mm. it's time to define the brand. And, mm. you know, what I'm trying to fast forward to, the reason we're here, sitting here today 2022 and we've got outerwear back in the game it's mm. because um it was not because but part of it is like falling back into why we actually started and what huffer is really about mm. and actually having the capacity to um do a project like that mm. oh, cool yeah and is there some um are we able to talk about what the future is looking like for huffer yeah 100 percent, man of course um well, can we start with this, uh, the outerwear thing, looking at being more of a permanent thing and yeah, with Huffer yeah. again? Or? So we've always made outerwear, and like mm. Down blew up as a category through the past five years with Down has just been huge. You know, the Huffer mm. Puffer, you, you see it on the streets, right? Yeah. You know, uh, it seems like everybody's got one. Yeah, Gina loves her. So yeah, oh yeah. man, that's great. Yeah, so, um, you know... I, I regard that as outerwear to some degree, you know, it's mm. like, and we've always made shell jackets and uh, waterproof rain jackets, you know, mm. I don't know, does a snowboard jacket, is it determined by a powder skirt? Mm. Uh, we put powder skirts back in uh, later slowpoke jacket. Mm. Um, but, um, 
Yeah, to actually, I think it, it, the defining moment of having a s- snow pant, yeah. uh, which is now back and will continue to be back in the future. Um, that's really exciting. And it, for me, it's it's not about, like, we want to dominate as a market opportunity with snow, <laughs> snow outerwear. It's more so we want to do it because it's true and mm. it's real. And, like, it helps us tell a story of where mm. we are, you know, like, we will still sell down product, you know. Yeah. People like it, and we're doing. We've got some amazing innovation in down, you know, mm. and but we also will have outerwear. You know, we're going to mm. have. So I think there's probably enough times past that there's a whole generation now that would be unaware of how entrenched in snowboarding Huffer was, or in yeah, this, in this now. Dude, the people weren't even born, man. Yeah. Like seriously, yeah. even like. Oh, Mitchie Darwin, you know, like, mm. hooking him up some product, you know, like, call him a team rider. Like, he wasn't born when we started. Mm. And he's he's a snowboarder, you know. I remember when I met up with him and I reached out and said, dude, we've got a 25-year capsule. Uh, we're coming back to our roots. And I had to tell him the whole story. He didn't know. Mm. And he's like a ripper. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't know anything about it. Yeah. That's crazy, man. See, that's crazy to someone like me that lived through the 90s and 2000s where it's like, well, that's just... Yeah. Like, how- I think I have the same conversation with Snow Parker. Like, how do you not know what Snow Parker is? But it's like, oh, it's been over a decade now. Yeah. Snow Parker. That's another one. Yeah, right. And, um, but you, Rad, and so you got some rippers repping um, this new outwear and stuff too. Yeah, part of of being down here, man, is like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is 25 years. We're celebrating 25 years of Huffa. We've we've released a capsule that pays homage to our roots, Mm -hmm. our first original seven piece range. Um, but um, more so it's come down here and reconnect and and just like you know there's been a pandemic for two years I've been guilty of not being down here enough um, I would call it the pandemic or mm. and you know it has been chaotic you know like yeah. running a business and um, but just to reconnect you know it's it's easy to grow a community where you are mm. and I think we've got a really strong um, community around our brand in Auckland but mm. it's time to you know <laughs> get out of it you know mm. like the southern lakes region man is like highly influential and mm. um and it's like you know it's, it's a it's an amazing inspirational testing ground for us to make products you know mm. and why not talk to the people so yeah we've been like hooking up and reconnecting with you know people in the in the area and and like just i don't know hanging out man like hanging out yeah. it's so it's so good and refreshing you know like mm. um and yeah, yeah, getting some snowboarders to rip our stuff was cool. Mm. Got yeah. some couple of good, good rippers there. Like yeah, Richie, yeah. Brent Screen. Yeah, yeah. Dill Butt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dill, you do. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I, I, it's a journey, man. Like, uh, um, I, I see that you know we're talking about this old team. I, I look at that team, man. I was like, what? But even when uh, it's just, I think. Instead of having team, I think, you know, a more modern term as a brand ambassador. Mm. You know, working with Mitchie, for example, man, he's, it's about your connection to people mm. and the influence you actually have. You know, like the word influencer today is just so misused, you know, like it's mm. a term people use in social media about people mm. that have a channel and yeah. a channel is potentially at times a number of followers. But to me your influence is what actually like you're massively influential you influence me like you know I don't even know how many followers you got on Instagram because it doesn't matter not many it doesn't matter yeah so what your influence Peter Jackson 
um, he has a massive influence, and I don't believe he's on social media. You mm. know, it, it gets tied up so often, man, with like um, something to do with social media and, and, and followers. Yeah, I don't think it's influence, man. Yeah, it's a it's, channel. It's a channel. Because you know. what, what are you influencing through that channel? Mm. So what is real influence? Someone that, well, someone. You could even argue that the pro snowboarders I looked up to back in the day were influencers. Oh my god, the massive yeah. influencers! Like, because they have actual influence. Yeah, they influence you. Yeah, and and they're the real deal. None, none of this fake ego, counting likes sort of carry on. Like, yeah, it's, it's they weird. just went did their thing. You're like, yes, please, I want a piece piece of that. Yeah, so so yeah. coming back and working with people within snow, like mm. working with people that actually really have influence. People mm. that when someone says something, they actually listen. You know, like mm. so so I, if you know as we go on a journey and uh, with outerwear, it's like surrounding ourselves with people that mm. have influence in the community. Yeah, oh, cool. And like listening to them, and like and just you know having mm. just loving. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're still snowboarding these days? Yeah, man. I've done, done lot, yeah, I've done one run this year, man. So, <laughs> so it's funny. Like, um, I did four runs last year. Mm. Man, pandemic. Eh? No, <laughs> no. But yeah, I had great intentions. It's been a busy couple of days. I'm going to try and ride tomorrow, but then I say that other admins come up, so. <laughs> mm. I'm keen, man. I've got like, I know, and in my in my head, I I think next winter we get a huffer house and and we uh for like six or eight weeks or something, and then so well, know. I know Brent Screen would be keen to take you around TC. <laughs> oh man, I'd love yeah. to. I'd love to. I man, I've only done like my whole life. I've only done like five days at TC. Oh, I don't sure. know. I don't. Oh, I don't. he he does. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to ride more. And I'll definitely be back in this area mm. over the next couple of months and to do proper runs. Sweet. Yeah. And, um, well, well, we're sort of saying you'll be back in a few months. I heard there might be rumours of <laughs> uh, alignment with uh, the World Mini Pipe Champs. <laughs> well, <Is> that- yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, man, I'd love to. I'd love to. Uh, hopefully we... we uh, we're allowed to do that, but I'd love to, if there was an opportunity to support Mini Pipe, man, that would be like mm. a dream, eh? Yeah. I think um, if there's anything we can offer, man, I'd love to try and support that. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't been lucky enough to attend, but from what I see, it looks like the, the comp of the year, eh? Oh, it's a great day. It's oh, just the, the day of the year. Yeah. Even yeah. if you're not into pipe riding, you're still stoked to be there, you know? Like, it's, it's a good day. Do you ride it? Do you drop in? I do. I'm not very good in pipe... <laughs> That's all right, but, You know, it doesn't matter. That's the great you know, thing about it, right? And, and it doesn't matter. I mean, last year was just awesome. Great sunny day. You had Carlos and JJ and Tiam. When they transferring it, out of the big pipe into the small pipe? Yeah, uh, out of the small to the big. Oh, out of the small so to the big. They were tearing the place oh, to yeah. pieces. Holy smokes. You had Ed Lee and Guy Elty on the mic, which was worth, <laughs> you know. Oh, my God. I mean, Ed convinced, I think he got in trouble with his wife because he convinced his son to piss in a snowboard boot or something and wear it I don't know, the, the, all that oh, shit was going it was hilarious but yeah wow. I mean and then you had four generations of riders in there yeah man you know and like I mean Will and Will J and Marcus Worley wow 
and Dill were there. Um, you know, it's like rare to see like a run where you've got oh shit, that's Will and that's JJ and then that's Tian over there and oh Dill's down there. Far oh, right, man. You know, like it's you know, and Dogger does it off his own back. Wow. It, it costs him money to do it. Dude. You know, and, uh, and and like we were saying before, like yeah. people don't see the work that goes into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a great, but it's a great celebration of our culture and our community. Yeah, yeah. And what it means to be a shredder in New Zealand. Wow, man! It'd be so rad excited. to have the Huffer crew there. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> oh man. Um, can we talk about briefly about this Audi thing that you've got going on? What, Audi, what, yeah. What that is? Um, yeah, I've, um, well, it's good segue, actually. I was just talking about, you know, like, people working with brands and, like, the idea of, um, instead of team writers, like, ambassadors, um, people that can act within the best interests of your um, brand. Mm. You know, someone like Mitch is involved, you know, like, it's beyond him just ripping. It's like, you know, it's more than that. So, yeah, yeah, I was lucky enough... Um, over the years, um, I've become an ambassador for Audi, which me, um, which is a, a great opportunity to work with the brand, um, and yeah, you know, in a way, I suppose it's to become a spokesperson for the brand in some way. Like, mm. um, uh, you know, it comes with Huffer as well, I, I suppose, and myself. You know, I end up, you know, it's hard to explain how it works, but. Uh, <laughs> you know i'm very passionate about the brand to be able to have an inside look into you know a brand that stands for like um you know the innovation and technology you know like mm. kind of what got our wheels turning when we started huffer you know to some degree yeah. i mean this is like the ultimate innovation in technology you know like a car brand that's transitioning into mobility yeah. you know and like um that's changing the way <laughs> the world works man uh, over the next decade and just having understanding of their strategy and and like um, how they do things, it's just so interesting. But um, mm. you know, like uh, we are lucky. We've made, um, we've collaborated with Audi. We've done two Huffer Edition Audi cars um, over the time. One in two thousand twelve, one in two thousand eighteen. So what does that involve? Is that just a different? Oh, it's like job? a small design project. Yeah, oh, like right. this, like um, um. Yeah, the first one we did, we managed to get these um, special seats made, um, branding on the gear stick, um, colorways that you can't do, badging wow. on the exterior. Um, and they're still around? Yeah, so, so we made 15 cars. <laughs> it's pretty cool, man. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so I mean, I've had all sorts of, I've been lucky enough to be to, to, up to the Audi factory in Ingolstadt in Germany. I've been to their museum. Uh, I went to San Francisco to the launch of their e-tron, which was their first EV. Um, so the ambassadorship, I suppose, works like usually they'd send the motor journalists up to, you know, the presentation, and then the journalists would write a story for the media to talk mm. about the car. But they go, oh, we'll send our ambassador up, and then so I went up there and we did a story in the New Zealand Herald motoring section about what Steve thought about the EV from a different perspective than a motoring journalist mm. and then you know uh, I don't know I'm not complaining mm, yeah. <laughs> um, so I've had these pretty amazing experiences and um, and it's such a cool brand and, and even not, not even the brand Audi but the people behind it the Giltrack group um, some great people a family business um, that 
that run that business. Um, there's many other car brands that they distribute, but yeah, yeah, it's really cool, man. Like, oh, cool. yeah, lucky, lucky, really lucky, man. Yeah. Um, before we start wrapping this up, I just remembered Aaron Jameson has a question oh, for me to okay. ask you. Um, imagine I'm Aaron right now. <laughs> yeah, okay. So awesome. there, there's actually two questions here. Uh-huh. First one is, uh, what made the Queenstown scene so good back in the day, and how loose were the snowboarders? Ah, uh, right. How good, yeah. Um, yeah, well, the people made the scene what it was, you know, like, there's a sense of freedom, like, you know, the world stopped when you went to Queenstown, and you didn't look beyond Queenstown, you know, you're very, you know, I think when I was talking to you before this podcast, and I said skateboarding's closed-minded, and I think, mm. so it's nobody, and I think that's a good thing, you know, like, mm. you don't really care about what else is going on, mm. and I think, in Queenstown especially, I think it's something to do with the lakes and the mountains you're trapped and everything's so focused you know mm. like um and these crazy characters come together man and to for a shared common you know mm. pastime which is to go and rip man something like you're saying then like you're just living in the moment when you're doing those things yeah yeah and you need that in your life mm. at some stage you know you can't i mean you can't be a ski bum for the, your entire life but you can do it for a moment and you can learn some great things from it. Mm. Um, and I think it was loose. It was really loose, man. Mm. There was no life. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a strategic plan, man. It was like in the moment. Yeah. And, you know, and it was a common ground for a lot of people. So there was a lot of energy. And, yeah. and again, you know, what we touched on earlier, the different walks of life, the different styles, mm. um, the different flavor, which yeah. just made it so cool. Yeah. Oh, sweet. And there's a second uh, second question from AJ. How come so many snowboarders ended up in the fashion industry? Yeah, well, I sp- yeah, well, it's a natural natural transition to some degree. Call it fashion or call it clothing. Um, uh, skateboarding and both snowboarding um, are a fashion. You know, like mm. it's a style, um, and then it's a byproduct of the culture that can be sold i suppose and mm. it can create an industry and you know outside of the hardware of skateboarding and snowboarding um i wouldn't own the numbers and i wish i did but i think the apparel is probably even bigger mm. and with the big business provides opportunity and if you know that industry like um like natural transition for myself being immersed in and we'll snowboarding more so at the end um i knew that industry and it was an easy transition you know like the story of having those connections gave us a foot in the door to start so it was a a natural journey in i suppose and i I think it is for a lot of people you know you work part-time in a retail store and then suddenly you know you understand how it works and then you see you know like even part-time you you see brands come in and you'll see the person that owns the store or the manager, what mm. it works, how they order it. You're just subconsciously learning so much stuff about mm. that industry, you know? Mm. And I think retail, just a shout out to people that work in retail, I think some amazing life skills, you know? people. I see people come into retail, and because we have our own retail stores ourselves, they'll look at it and go, oh, just working a job so I can get some money. Or it's like, man, I'm working retail, I'm learning. 
learning life skills here, you know, like there's some yeah, important lessons you can learn. Interact with a lot of different types of people. Yeah, so it's how you look at it, eh? Like it's such a massive opportunity. Mm. But yeah, yeah, I really think there's a big industry around it, so mm. it's a natural transition. Mm. And do you have any advice for aspiring shredders? Um, yeah, <laughs> totally do. Um, so much, whether it's relevant. <laughs> <laughs> Well, first thing, in life, man, I've got the, uh, it's really simple, and I've been told it by so many different people in different areas of my life, but you go where you look. Mm. It's such a good, and I, I learned that through snowboarding. So you want to do frontside three, how do you think you do it? Your eyes start everything, you know? Mm. Yeah. Eyes, head, shoulders, body, legs, and mm. you, look, you look for your landing, right? Yeah. So if you apply that to life, right? So they say you do a frontside three. where yeah you go where you look so you have a plan like you know even if it's a dream if you're looking up above the line and you focus on it you'll get there you know mm. or like driving when you drive on a track on a racetrack if you drive to an apex and if you look at the apex you'll hit the apex but you're constantly looking through you know mm. it's your vision that takes you so it's like um for a snowboard tricks or skills or picking lines it's vision but also in life it's such a life lesson yeah. so that i've learned that from snowboarding that i apply to my natural life yeah tennis phew, go where you look with a ball boom you know yeah so many things yeah when we break it down like that it makes a lot of sense so there's that yeah. it was a bit deeper and then uh, mm. and then um man just wow like don't spend too much time in the park <laughs> yeah. no, no no the parks are awesome but going like you know I, I dj a bit as well i grew up with vinyl mm-hmm. and um this is a good analogy i reckon but like and i you know i've been through a few generations of djs and seen it and you learn to mix on vinyl mm-hmm. you know you learn to mix inside your head and you break it down it's like learning a skate trick right so you can hear one song you can hear another one and you can determine what's happening in, in your head mm. you go that one's going like this this one's going like this and then you can work them out and you can adjust the pitch and try and mix them right mm. that's a basic mix um then like digital djing came along and then you know there was kids <laughs> that would just uh, auto bpm push the button see that they look at a screen you got like screens on your cdjs or on your serato on your laptop and it's visual and you can see it and you're just pushing buttons and you're making it happen, right? Mm. So it's very robotic and easy, um, which the analogy to that is park versus riding natural terrain, mm. which we all grew up, well, I grew up riding natural terrain. You parks, you've got perfect ramps, <laughs> mm. perfect landings. With natural terrain, um, you got to dig a bit deeper it. Mm. And you can uh, actually get more out of your writing if you learn on that. Yeah. But the progression's slow. Mm. <laughs> like, that's the thing. A DJ can, you know, I can see, was it Nico was DJing downtown on Friday or something? I mean, oh, was it, you know, how was he, 19? I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know, I man. I wasn't there. But... Yeah, he was, like, and he was like killing it. And I was mm. like, how did you learn to DJ so quick? And it was like technology. Mm. It's like snowboarders these days you've got so much accessibility to so much good shit to ride. Mm. I mean, if we had tables like that back in the day, holy shit. 
yeah. we had to go and like make it up so getting that mix of park and natural terrain mm. know how to write a good line how to pick it and make it feel good mm. Mm. Was that, does it make sense that totally makes sense yeah and the analogy of DJ AJ <laughs> sort of touches on that too is like he's like you look at someone like Tian who grew up riding Coronet yeah man yeah that place teaches you to ride so can we you talk know. about Coronet on the way up well we can talk about Coronet right now <laughs> yeah man yeah cause I mean I, I love pulling it at like over over here in, you know Wanaka like it's Kadrona and Treble Cone and Treble Cone rightly so has this cult following with a lot of mm. locals and but on a powder day you know and the powder day I'm talking about is when you got snow to the valley floor yeah that's pretty hard to beat Coronet man Coronet's like it's okay it's not Alaska Steeps but the whole thing is a playground Whakapapa and, and Coronet Peak are yeah. my two favourites hands down yeah and that's probably because um, I haven't been shown around TC well enough yet but <laughs> yeah man like it's all about the fall line right like mm. Tura like don't like it it's like on a big spine and you're always traversing it feels like some man people could be kind of mad on this thing eh? like yeah fuck pub is like this mad basin man it's just like walls everywhere and like mm. it's just got a bit of fall line in my box anyway and it's mm. just my opinion but and current it's the same it's just it's got flow um like it feels like a skate like, park on snow there's like 15 20 hits on one run you know mm. You know, they don't have to be the biggest ones, but it floats. And it's not not how you do one, it's how you land from one and then instantly hit the next, you know, mm. within seconds. And it's just, it's like a, yeah, man, hard to explain how good it is, eh? Yeah. Totally I mean, awesome, yeah. Unless, unless you've had it good, you know. Like, you only need 10 centimeters, man. Yeah. Five to 10 on a relatively, you know, not on ice, but like on a base. It just, it's such a top up that you can just make the day so good, man. Mm-hmm chop powder like just flying man yeah, yeah it's so good man yeah no, i love that place it's a lot of fun yeah yeah mm. um and um have we got any before we roll into our end has we got any thank yous and shout outs you'd like to give yeah 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 wow um yeah so much so much um <laughs> yeah special shout out to um Queenstown crew <laughs> yeah yeah. OG man like Queenstown man it was a jam eh? like um, um, so yeah it was cool it's cool to have your territory too you know mm. it doesn't have to be ugly but man it was you know that was you know it was the people the people that made it so Queenstown mm. crew hard you know this we've talked about a lot of people there um Shout out to all the independent retailers that supported Huffer from the start. Um, I'm bouncing around here. I don't know mm. who I'm shouting out to, but um, without the support of them and then people actually buying our products, you know, 25 years later, we're still here. So there's a lot of people that supported our brand. So a special shout out to them. Um, my mum, my dad, <laughs> you know, like uh, my wife, um, my friends, you know, friends. Mm. Uh, you know friends are are so important I'm a very social person and I think having friends around you um, you can beef it out with your friends but you know your true friends will stick mm. but um, yeah yeah I, I don't know it's too hard to sort of shout out yeah. <laughs> and thank everyone but so many people thank yourself man like um, it's been great over the past I don't know maybe nine months or whatever it's been for me 
listening to these podcasts is um, at a time when we're sort of, you know, digging deep um, with the brand Huffer, coming back, making outerwear, celebrating 25 years, you know, like whilst going through that, you're talking about influence, you have influenced that. Um, and the content, the hard mahi that you've done to put this together, man, and the content within it from all the contributors, man, um, you know, um, the last one I listened to was Danny. Um, I haven't listened to all of them, but a lot of them, and I'll continue to. So um, that whole community that I thank you for and the people um, that have contributed contributed with their conversations but then the people that are in those conversations mm. due to all those people yeah. it's pretty cool man you know I, I think you, I, you do know but you don't know how big this is man i reckon it's pretty cool um, man. it's just great that people want to hear these stories of where we're coming from and hopefully where we're going yeah and, uh, yeah. and it's documented too man and to have this out you know like you know Quite a lot of these podcasts are long. <laughs> yeah. But that's good. It's documented, you know. It's mm. like you've extracted it, you know. When's the last time I had an opportunity to talk about some of that stuff, man? Mm. It's really cool. So I really thank you, mm. man. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, we roll into our enders then. Yeah. Uh, Favourite rider? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, man. Favourite rider. Sheesh. Um... Well, I know. Well, I can't say Jamie Lano, but you can. You, you can if you want. No, I'm gonna go Devon Walsh. Devon Walsh. Uh, favorite mountain. Squaw Valley. Favorite board. Sheesh. Favorite board. Wow. Um, gee, man, boy. That's a hard one. Mm. That is a hard one. Um, T. Rice. So. Bob T. Man. Uh, favorite video part. Favorite video part. Sheepers, Caribbean. Um. Wow. That can also be like favorite video. Or- yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was one that influenced me the most? I suppose. Um, Maybe like, you know, like early days favorite part was like, you know, old Mike Ranquit, like what it would have been like, um, man, I, gotta, I should have done my research, but what was um, one of his earlier movies? Uh, Roadkill? Roadkill, yeah, Roadkill, yeah. yeah that that was, was White uh, Zombie and stuff, eh? I don't, oh no, that was like full line films. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't remember that. Well, Roadkill was full line films too. Was it? I mean, Roku was so sick though. Like, right, yeah, Roku, Roku. Yeah, I do remember Roku. That was pretty mean. So good. Yeah, yeah. I think some of the earlier videos, which I probably wouldn't say, you know, they influenced and in the, they're probably my favorite, favorite for the time. But then, you know, some of the more modern stuffs like pretty mind-blowingly mm. uh, amazing. So, yeah, all the TV series stuff is so good. Eh? Like, mm. I mean, yeah. obviously, um, yeah. yeah. Wow, man. Mm. All the videos far out. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Who knows? Mm. <laughs> Favourite gig? Favourite gig? Sheesh, okay. Um, yeah, wow. Um, I'm a fan of, like, a real intimate gig, eh? Like, 
a small small gig instead of these mind-blowing crazy big festivals you know like mm. someone big in a small venue i'm trying to think about what that might have been to me but um you know some of my favorite gigs are not even like any acts like there was these shows in auckland called the turnaround it was manuel bundy uh kyan and um andy anyway these three djs that just threw these most, most amazing parties mm. but they were just like in small underground uh, clubs with big speakers that's so, pretty cool. Yeah. Manuel Bundy's like the the man. But yeah, I remember like the series of those gigs and it yeah, anyway. Mm. They were cool man. Uh, favourite city. Favourite city. Um it's easy for me to say Auckland because I'm positive about Auckland and a lot of people don't like it, but I sort of get the most out of it and to me cities um I say that because I live there and mm there's a lot of people I know there and I like being around people I'm very social but favourite city that I don't live <laughs> at um, would be New York City I'd say Sweet. but then uh, no I don't know man like New York's but ugly eh? if you actually look at New York it's terrible it's oh, like yeah. nothing beautiful about it Central oh, Park there's just rats everywhere and it's dirty but the thing of it you know I think city it's about the people right and the culture mm. I, I'd be, I wonder what it's like post-pandemic, but, man, I've, I've spent a bit of time there. And that's had influence on me in New York culture mm. more so than the, you know, the geographical mm. part of it, yeah. Favourite trick? Favourite trick. Um, yeah, favourite trick. Um, just frontside three or just a method man so done right yeah uh favorite board graphic favorite board graphic it goes against my um audi ambassador ambassadorship but the matt smith silence with the oh yeah the, i think you've got that board right oh no i don't have the bmw one the bmw got, yeah the m's yeah. yeah so simple man such a clean mm. graphic yeah and it just man can we say like where are the board graphics these days man I have to say, the mm. current board graphics is just nothing to offer, eh? There's nothing. Mm. It's, just like, really poor, man. Mm. Like, the graphics here, like, if you don't, like, me, I'm not snowboarding as much as I should be, but when I get a board, it's got to look good, man. And mm. you get a board that, you know, I'm really particular about my waist widths, and, you know, my board, by the way, would be a 160, slightly directional, mid-wide. Mm. That's the board I want to ride. So if you want to find that, and then it's got to... You don't want to spend your money on a board and then it doesn't look good. Yeah. What's yeah. up with the board graphics? I don't know. I mean, maybe Who are designing these um, things, man? Less artists and more graphic designers? I don't know. Yeah, it's weird, eh? Yeah. I mean, LibTech's obviously got a good thing going, man. They'll mm. be the best of graphics, but... I mean, that, but that's a specific look, right? But where's mm. the diversity and, like... I don't know. Or just compare it to, like, the 90s. Like, remember how sick the Burton graphics were in the 90s? Oh, and dude. And all the Lamars, remember? The, yeah. They came out with the... Uh, photographic tops and joyride and like yeah it was so cool man and and then you had the antithesis to, to that was be like type A with type just a. clean lines oh man I love that mm. shit man yeah wow like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> shit mm. yeah. <laughs> well, um man. who has the best method oh wow oh I should have thought about this as I know you asked this one there <laughs> yeah jeez um Matt Finlay 
Oh, wow, that's a name I haven't heard in a while. Dude, that guy's so psycho. Mm. I reckon better than any international. My, you know, like, there's people who probably go, oh, Matt can hold it down, but, like, bigger. But, man, that guy... Because, like, I don't know how many people would know that guy, but, dude, he could skate so well. Mm. He, was, he was a skater, man, that snowboarded. And then I just saw him, like, in Queenstown, just... Man, that's he could just on oh, lockdown, man. Like, mm. so that's the. But yeah, as far as the like super famous mm. best method, I'd say. Um, oh man, I'd say Devin Walsh because I've I've hiked a back kicker at Coronet Peak with him, um, and been had the same jump as him and seen him do it and going, man. Yeah, and yeah, oh. he's one of my favorite riders. So oh, to watch that guy in live must have been a treat. Nate yeah. Cole. Um, Jamie Lynn obviously always behind your front foot bro <laughs> yeah, yeah and final bonus question what's yep. the key to a good method yeah that man <laughs> yeah. don't grab the nose man but that's me you can if you want I don't know uh, <laughs> and square it out man and do it switch exactly the same no don't do it exactly the same make sure your board's set back mm. and then do it <laughs> so <laughs> Is that good? That's just my preference. <laughs> oh, dude, it's all good. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time, and oh, hopefully we'll you. see you back down here in a few months. Yeah, yeah, well, I'll be around, man, um, and I'll be looking you up, man, so. So, hey. Yeah, yeah, awesome, man. I might actually be able to ride a snowboard by that time, so that'd be kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be cool, <laughs> as. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you.